0: What's up, fantasy nerds? Welcome back to another weekly episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And returning special guest is Craig Hanks from the Legendary Podcast. He's joining us again. What's up, Craig? Woohoo! Hey, everybody. How's it going? <laughs> I am so incredibly excited to reach this particular episode because... As you well know, like everyone listening, we we finally come to the end of Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn trilogy. We're wrapping up our discussion today with, you know, the climax of The Hero of Ages, the entire second half of the book. And this here is an ending that I've been just chomping at the bit to get at ever since we started. You know, like from like the ending of The Wheel of Time and the ending of Mistborn were so influential to the conception of this podcast. And I just want to say that even though I did what must have been my... 20th or 30th read through of this book at this point. I'm just, I'm still sad that it's over. So, now that that's out of the way, I just want to say, Drew, would you please be so kind as to explain just how perfectly Brandon Sanderson managed to end this trilogy of his? <laughs>
1: okay. No pressure. So, uh, yeah, so where we left off last one, Spook had just uh, saved a child from, you know, saved a bunch of people really from a burning building in Urto, and kind of revealed to uh, Breeze and Cezid that he is somehow burning pewter. Um, they, uh, they start planning a, a new scheme to overthrow Quelian because Quelian feels like things are getting out of control and they think he's going to attack them. Uh, it is, in fact, revealed that Spook got that pewter because of the sword blade that was stabbed into him and acted as a hemallergic spike. And Ruin was actually the one talking to him, not Kelsier. Until Spook, you know, took that that shard out and then Kelsier did speak to him (laughs) during the uh, moments of Quellian's downfall. But meanwhile, Vin and Ellen were back at Fadric City. Vin snuck into the storage cavern there and was trapped inside and Ruin came to her and... And uh, they, they had some fun conversations before Ruin's main man, his main agent, Marsh, showed up. And during that little confrontation, Vin's earring came out, and she drew on the mists once again. And she, you know, she got away. Elland met, very briefly, met Larys as he was dying and dropped the shard of preservation out, out in the middle of nowhere. They figured out what was going on with the adium, and there's a whole big showdown at uh, the the Trust, the homeland of the Condra, where Ruin is trying to get his body back, all that adium, and they discover that the Mistfallen were in fact adium mistings, and so they fought against Ruin's forces, burning up the stock of adium. Elend burns Duraliman and adium at the same time, basically sees straight into the spiritual realm, figures out what he needs to do, Vin fighting a bunch of Inquisitors, draws on the mists once again, and uh, ascends to preservation. Elland is killed by Marsh. Vin sees Elland die, so she throws herself at Ruin, and in so doing, kills herself and Ruin, and says it is there at the very end to pick up both shards and become Harmony. And that, that is our ending. That is the end of Mistborn Era One. <laughs> now we don't, and, oh,
2: yeah, the the we don't have the name. We don't have the name Harmony at this point, right? That, that's yeah. We come also a didn't really have the name Laras
0: yet. We have like or or Liracium.
1: I think I think we didn't have Let Unless did one of the uh, epilogues no. mention it and I didn't catch? Oh, I don't know if it's in the Ars Arcanum. It's been a long time since I've actually looked at the Ars Arcanum for. It is rest, not. But I, the most we I, know about yeah. him is that
0: Sazed in the epilogues calls him a dying god.
1: Yes. um... The, I think the first time Loraxium was named was on the uh, the uh, Alamantic table poster. Yeah, right. That Dragonsteel released, mm. and uh, those posters were awesome, by the way. The Alamantic hemolytic <laughs> uh, on and Pherochemical. Yeah, the, yeah. There's some really, really neat things going on with those, but uh, but yeah, quite Let's, an ending. Let's jump right into style,
0: and I guess I'll, uh, I'll I'll just ask if there's anything you guys want to come out of the gate with. What are we gonna What are we gonna open with? I actually don't have a lot about style today. I just have an absolute boatload to discuss with characters and, of course, our miscellaneous and our lore segments. But uh, uh, style. Yeah, I, I got about? something for you. I've got right, something you for you. Dude. Dude. So, and
2: this is something that we brought up, I think, a, a, look, briefly last time with the uh, the. the the uh, homicidal hat trick <laughs> that's what it was oh right yes. okay so we yep. we brought we we kind of danced around this particular issue with that um and that is i uh, you know every author has their strengths and their weaknesses and they you can watch them over their career try to you know overcome their weaknesses and build on their strengths and all that stuff i i'm just gonna go out and say it that generally speaking brandon sanderson not that funny he's not a humorist okay So every once in a while, he'll score with a good line or something or, you know, uh, some fun situational comedy or whatever. But generally speaking, my funny bone, not particularly tickled uh, by Brandon Sanderson. What he does well is what we get at the end of uh, Hero of Ages or at the end of Well of Ascension or at the end of uh, Final Empire. So basically, he has now left behind all of the humor because there is no more humor. We are literally hip deep in Ash. Uh, there's lava flows. Uh, the, the world is quite literally burning before our eyes. There is no humor to be found here. And this is Sanderson at his finest. Uh, when he, you know, because his humor tends to, uh, well, it, it, it rhymes with I find juvenile. It t-
1: yeah right (laughs) and so
2: if if it's not in the right setting like i think that works perfectly good in a you know an arithmetist or whatever Uh, other you know kind of uh more juvenile alcatraz yeah yeah, uh more juvenile fiction it works just fine uh for what it is but it it hasn't worked as well when he's tried to do it most of the time in mistborn and so i was so grateful that he just kind of leaves it behind and just shreds for the last half of this book with, you know, really relying on his actual strengths. yeah
0: you know, that that's a damn good point. I actually hadn't even considered the fact that there was no really no humor in this book that I could that I could mention. I didn't consider that. That's a really damn good point. And those who've listened to our podcast before and our episodes on anything by Brandon Sanderson, they know, I mean, you know, Drew and I have discussed, uh sanderson's you know his his penchant for humor or lack thereof if you could if you interpret it that way um we've we've discussed that endlessly and our our feelings about that are very clear my feelings about that are very clear i like he's not and it's it's a matter of taste right rob exactly exactly.
2: i don't think it works I don't think he's very funny. You guys apparently don't think he's very funny most of the time. Like I said, he can score a few jokes every now and then. But right, like, right. but it's a matter of right. taste. So if somebody else out there
0: finds him hilarious, good on you. That's fine. And, and, and part of my problem is when he approaches it, uh, it tends to be heavy-handed. It's not subtle. It's very much obnoxious and in your face. Um, which, for some people, that really, really tickles their funny bone. Uh, not, not so for me. Not so for you, it sounds like, Craig. I know it's not so for you, Drew. But let's... I mean in this book you're absolutely right he just sheds any any need for that and he just focuses on what he does best and this book breathes this book burns for it and I, I i love i love this book i love this book
1: yeah i i know i know craig always describes this you know the climactic sequence here is as, as you know the the shredding guitar solo of fantasy mm. and, you know the and and it's really an apt metaphor it's it, there's so much going on at such a high speed, and it's so expertly crafted that it it, it would in the hands of a, a less talented writer an ending like this could could just become a mess and fall apart but brandon Brandon is brandon these these huge climactic endings that's that's his bread and butter you know uh we've we've read how many Brandon Sanderson books on the podcast and the only one we've ever not said we love the ending for was calamity every other book, every (laughs) single other book the endings are awesome because that is brandon sanderson's biggest strength
0: yeah like how he handles these endings i'm I'm just picturing brandon sanderson juggling bowling pins while they're on fire (laughs) while chanting a, a viking war hymn you know like i can't believe everything that he's doing everything he's keeping track of it must have been a hell of an undertaking but so rewarding for it. I can't imagine what it feels like as a reader to crank an ending out like this and
1: nail yeah. it. And nail it. <laughs> yeah, if, if at any point in my life I write an ending of a book that's even remotely close to this in quality, I will be thrilled.
0: <laughs> yeah, dream achieved. My God. Um, now, I also want to talk about something that I had been gearing up to discuss last episode before... Realizing during my notes prep time earlier that same day, pardon me, this IPA is coming right back up. It's really good though. Uh, The most most of what I wanted to talk about, it happens in the second half. So I couldn't talk about it at that point. I had to stop myself. I'm talking about Sanderson's approach to revealing everything he's hidden and his way of keeping us up to speed with very specific things before whipping that proverbial cover off and just going, ta-da! And I appreciate it so much. Having read this book now as many times as I have, what Brandon does is he clearly likes to remind you of a particular mystery, seemingly with nonchalance. He does it in a very deft way. He's very subtle about it. It, It's genius. Right before, for example, right before Ruin reveals himself to Vin, as she's exploring the catacombs beneath the ministry building, she hears Reen's voice in her head. I think she might even hear it twice, but she definitely hears it at least once. You know, And, of course, immediately we get that revelation. Reen arrives. She doesn't fall for it. She knows yeah. what Rune is up to. Um, that moment in the dark as he starts laughing and we have the echoing through the cavern. Oh, my God. The creep factor is way up there. But there are what I'm trying to say is there are other moments in the series. I can't remember exactly what they were. I think it might still be in my other note file. But Brandon has this habit. If you know what's coming as you... As I do now, having read them so many times, I know what the next revelation is about to be. And so when that little hint is given, I'm there going, "Ah, oh, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. And it's very, very well done.
1: Yeah, I vividly remember the first time I read this book and and Reen walks out of the shadows. And I I was just floored. I was like, oh, my gosh, like what a twist. And then, you know, within whatever two pages of the next Vin, uh, next Vin chapter is like, okay, no, it's not actually Reen, but it's even crazier than if it were Reen. You know, yeah. that's that's one of, uh, well, we'll get to that in favorite scenes. <laughs>
2: you know, one, one of the things he does, <laughs> one of the things he does so well, in my opinion, is to give you revelations and twists and tie everything together, you know, especially not just at the end of a book, but the end of, of a series like this where you feel, uh, you, you finally realize that you've been led by the nose. You don't, you didn't know what was happening all along. Nothing, <laughs> nothing that you thought was real was real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but what he does, and I don't know how he does it. I'm not here to analyze exactly the way that he does it. But he's able to walk the tightrope where he can make those twists, make those turns, and make you feel like an idiot without ever making you feel like an idiot yes right yes so much Where, yes it is, so he he pulls the rug right out from under you and you should be pissed at him but then you realize that no he he did lay the breadcrumbs the whole way he set all the pieces just right and so it's it's my fault that i didn't see him i guess you know and no, so
0: mm-hmm.
2: you feel like an idiot without ever being told that you're an idiot
0: yeah, you no. Know, he he rips that rug out from underneath you. You fall down. You land flat on your ass, but you can't help but start laughing because it was just ma- it was so masterfully done.
1: Yeah. yeah. So you know, of course, one of those biggest twists is is earring and mm. and what the mists actually are, and and you know what it meant in the first book that she was burning the mists. And I am curious to get your opinions on that because even though. Like like I don't know, I have a hard time justifying what she does at the end of the first book because it is a Deus Ex Machina. Even though it has an in-world explanation, we don't get that for two more books, you know? And and yeah, it's cool when, when you have that moment, you know, that light bulb goes on in your head and you're like, Oh my gosh, the earring was a hemallergic spike. It was that was what was preventing her from, you know, interacting with the Miss, but you don't know any of that in the first book. And so that, that remains one of my biggest issues with the ending of the first book. I, I love The Final Empire. It's my favorite book in the trilogy. But it, I think that is a glaring weak spot in it. And it's it's not a glaring weak spot in this book. It's done very, very well. But I don't think how well it's done in this book totally justifies how it's done in the first book. So mm-hmm. let me ask you okay. a
2: lore question, Drew. Uh, because it's said that she's able now to draw on the mists and, and ascend to preservation because her body was prepped at the well of ascension, right? She she touched yeah. the power That's and so now she can yeah. so how did she do it in the first book?
1: She didn't. Wait. Well, she she was only able to to like very briefly do it. Oh. She you know, she, she drew on the mists, but she couldn't ascend yet she she could access the power but she wasn't fully like use that that Cosmere capital C connection she wasn't fully connected yet with with preservation as I understand it and preservation was still alive there was already you know there was still a vessel you know for all of that power and so once Laris died then you but between her having touched uh, the power in the well and Larys dying and preservation, you know, not, you know, not um, being fully controlled. You know, they're more behind the scenes, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that whenever we cover secret history. But um, but yeah, it was it was kind of the combination of things. And so in the first book, since there was that vessel and she didn't have that like super strong capital C connection, she couldn't ascend way she does at the end of this one.
0: Yeah, as far as I understand it, uh, if, I, if I were to throw an analogy for it, I would say she could sip from the cup, but she couldn't hold it. Sure. You know. All right. Um, and I, I'm really glad, uh, Drew, that you brought up the uh, the Deus ex Machina there because I, I just went back and listened, just maybe a week or two ago, to the uh, the pre-file for our uh, Misborn, the Final Empire episode uh, with Daniel Green. Second half, and in in it, you also brought up exactly what we were just talking about about the Deus Ex Machina, and I remember not quite agreeing with you fully, but in hindsight, what I was actually thinking of, I was actually confusing the Deus Ex Machina with Chekhov's gun, and so oh, so okay. because I had had my wires crossed in those two concepts, um, I, I found myself listening back to that episode and going, no, what am I what am I saying? What the hell am I saying? <laughs> Drew's absolutely right, so I just I figure you know now if three four weeks later I'm gonna retract a lot of what i was saying there but because you were
1: you were absolutely right yeah it's i don't know i it, a lot of people you know will excuse it because it does have an in-world explanation but i i have a hard time grappling with it because you don't get that explanation for you know 2,000 more pages after <laughs> it happens no i think yeah, that's yeah. i
2: think that's valid because if you <sighs> want to take the entire thing as a, a whole and say this this isn't going to work unless you read all three books. Well, then it shouldn't be three books. You know, like if you're going to write a trilogy, then each book needs to work by itself. And I, I think I see where you're coming from, Drew. I probably don't feel quite as strongly about it as you do. I think um, you guys have no doubt talked about Brandon's uh, The Rule of Awesome. Yes. Uh, and I think oh, yeah. that, we've, we've that absolutely applies when she draws on the mists. It's just, no, that's awesome. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and excuse it.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I, no, I, I do want to clarify that I, I actually doesn't give me a problem. I don't have a problem with it. I still enjoy the the crap out of it. I, but I can see exactly what Drew's saying. It is absolutely Dave's ex mocking. It just doesn't bother me.
1: Okay. Yeah, and I think I would have to go back and and you know check, you know the, I think it was on a live stream, one of the YouTube live streams he did when he was talking about the Mistborn screenplay and some of the changes he's making. And I mm. think he said he's going to change Vin drawing on the mists in the Mistborn movie, that it's not going to happen that way because, you know, he because it's a day of six months.
2: Yeah, because he recognizes
0: that. Sure, that makes sense. That's fair. That's
1: fair. Um, That's That honestly
0: wraps up everything I have about his style just because I'm so excited to talk about our characters individually. (laughs) Um, Anything else about style you guys want to get out of the way?
2: Um, Real quick, I guess it's Mm -hmm. probably worth noting, uh, very similar to what happens at the end of uh, The Wheel of Time, the chapter length Starts getting shorter and shorter yeah. and shorter as you go, and um, you might not notice it if you're really really caught up in just reading the book. But um, you know, after your fourth, fifth, or thirtieth time through, Rob, it starts to become <clears> apparent <throat> what least. he's doing. Where the pace is picking up, and it's it's uh, it feels very organic, but it's kind of a, a an artificial way of picking up the pace just by switching POVs really really quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely definitely um future it, it authors is, take note yeah well it's kind of funny cuz the the last book i wrote um mm. when i get into the climax there's like two chapters in a row that are like the two ch- two longest chapters in the book <laughs> oh nice and then and then it ends with two of the shortest so it's like i i didn't use quite that same technique but there are a lot of in those long chapters i used a lot of you know Hard, point hard break. Of view, yeah. Point of view switches and, and hard page breaks, and and so it's like uh, you you get that that phenomenon sort of in within the chapter instead of using the chapters themselves to do that. Sweet, sweet, yeah. All right, shall we go into
0: characters? Let's do it. Okay, so start with Vin. You know who else we're we gonna start with? Um, <clears throat> you know we're here. We're, we're finally here. This is the culmination of Vin's journey. This is the reason she was born. The reason she is unknowingly spiked. The reason she was groomed to take up the shard of preservation and use her own love and humanity to bring destruction to the Destroyer. She's she's grown up. And she's become the like, the woman that she wants to be. You know, I, I found it so rewarding to read.
1: Yeah. Yeah, She's she's a ton of fun to read in the second half of this book. I mean... The, the whole The whole little adventure in the storage cavern as a prisoner in Phadrex and then and then just where she goes from there it, it just keeps getting better and better and and it's only possible because she has found that that kind of inner peace, that balance of the different aspects of herself you know that we talked about last week um, and and she she can do what she needs to do because she is now a complete incarnation of Vin.
2: And there's yeah. something else that uh, that we get to know about her. I mean, we you can know this about her already, but then it's pointed out explicitly in the text when Ellen said, I think it's Ellen says something along the lines of, you know, she may not be a scholar, she may not read as many books as I do, but this is a smart woman. Yeah. She, it's the whole book smarts versus street street smarts thing, and uh, she's extremely cunning and intelligent. Uh, but she also has this deferment to action that somebody like Ellen doesn't have. And Mm -hmm. so we get that great scene when she, uh, when she heads to Luthadel, and she does that because, you know, she has a plan. She she says, okay, I've got an idea. Here's how I think it's probably gonna go. And then she just goes. She doesn't really stop and think about it all that much more. Uh, But this is a a woman who uh, can quickly assess her situation make decisions and then take action um it's uh it's it's a cool character trait that i think uh people could aspire to maybe
1: yeah yeah it's it it makes it more fun to read her because you don't have that frustration of you know wallowing through you know should should i do this i think i should do this but you know what are the consequences going to be you know they're you know, with, without spoiling thing, you know there are a few there are a few characters in the Wheel of Time, for instance, who who, <laughs> could, who could do with Vin's assertiveness. Mm. Well, I Ellen himself. In, yeah, 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 and Ellen himself, of course. Yeah, yeah so. he's and he could be very
2: frustrating to read for long stretches because it's like, dude, just just calm
0: yourself and do something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this is not to say that Vin is without faults. Still, even still, you know, like obviously she lets her curiosity, or maybe it's just like her arrogance get the better of her at times or maybe she's just letting yeoman use her confidence against her but what what i find really rewarding about this is that she no longer is Vin. been she no longer considers this to be a personal flaw so much as, as it is just a clever move on yeoman's part you know like it, it was it, it's it's really really great to see that she has finished her change into this woman that she i was gonna say that she becomes but this woman that she ends up being for the rest of her you know short days it was
1: it's really really good to see um, yeah and I, yeah. I really liked that with um, with Yeoman how he he took advantage of her overconfidence and I yeah. I, I especially liked the letter that he sent Ellen mm. yeah you know, the the wording in that was so nice and and then he points out and he's like the, the one thing you can you can be confident about with Miss Borden is that to a man they are overconfident
0: yeah, I'll yeah. be talking about this more in my in my uh miscellaneous <laughs> points. I have a point about this.
1: Yeah. So, uh but I I don't have anything more about Vin um you know, like I said last episode, her character arc was pretty much finished by the halfway point of this book. There there wasn't a whole lot more growth for her to do. Um and so Reading her in the second half of this book is mostly just a bunch of fun.
2: (laughs) Well, I will say, lastly, on Vin's character, he draws her expertly as this uh, person who takes action and also somebody who, even if she doesn't delight in violence, she certainly embraces violence as part of her, uh, her strengths, right? Her personality. She is somebody steeped in violence. And that character trait is what allows her to go after ruin in the end, where she has not held the power for long enough that it has altered her personality the way that these, uh, well, sorry, we're getting into a little bit of Cosmere lore here, I guess, but the the (laughs) way that the shards tend to affect those who hold them. uh, She hasn't had it long enough for it to do that. And so while she can't overcome its natural limitations, uh, you know, as the power of preservation, she can, Imbue it with her own personality. And so she is someone who defers to action, and often action means violence. And so that's how the previous uh, preservation couldn't have gone after Ruin in that way, but she can. Um, And so she's, she is, you know, if Sazed had grabbed the power first, he wouldn't have been able to do that. And the world probably would have ended. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, she bid farewell to this world and pulled Ruin into the abyss with her. I love. I just. Oh my! I'm gonna. I'm gonna be gushing about these words <laughs> so much for the rest of this episode. I just ah, uh, Vin. Thought just thumbs up. So much thumbs up. So many thumbs up. I should correct myself. But um, yeah, that's everything I have to say about Vin for now. For now, until future episodes. There's a little teaser there. Okay. Okay. A lot of a lot of uh, Cosmere fans are going. What the hell does he mean by that? Right now, <laughs> I'll, I'll elaborate in the future, I promise. But I'm ready to go into Ellen. Is there anything else about Vin that you guys want to discuss before we move on to our Emperor of Man? Let's do it. All right, Ellen, my man, Ellen Venture. What a guy! I, you know, seeing seeing him have to work without Vin and w- without her support, it was rough. You know, like seeing him try to keep his proverbial sh- together. Well, not only like his kingdom continues to be denied the, the resources that it needs, but now his wife is gone, likely in mortal peril, while the world literally burns around him. But, you know, all these revelations that we're getting from Ellen's points of view in part five, these are amongst my favorite revelations in all of epic fantasy. The revelation what the mists are actually doing, the revelation that there are atium mistings, the revelation that... You know, as he arrives in the Terrace Asylum for the Luthadel uh, uh, citizenry, he discovers that he has an entire army of ATM mistings with him. You know, and of course his final moments, like this, the fight with the Coloss, oh. Ellen fighting alone, burning Duralumin and ATM, seeing everything. It just, it, it, it broke my heart when he died. Like even more so than it did. When Vin died, you know, because as our main character with Vin, we already, you know, at least got the sense that her life, particularly in a series with like as as many grim, dark tones as this one, her life was at stake here and she wasn't guaranteed to live. I wasn't, I can't say I was entirely surprised to see that she died, but Ellen, you know, seeing the world lose that naive boy, that hopeful scholar, this ardent warrior, the husband he wanted to be it hit me in a place at 18 or 19 years old when I read this for the first time that I just, I didn't even know I had, you know. Just, I, I love Alan Venture. That guy's such a badass.
1: Yeah, I, I was so surprised. Not only that he died, but how he died. <laughs> yeah, the 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 whole Duralumin and Adium thing, I... It, you know, it, it's like we were talking about it earlier. It's one of those things that as readers we we should be thinking about you know oh what's going to happen with with that combination but it still took me by surprise and and in that moment it it was one of the coolest things i thought brandon did having having that essentially giving you know a, a mistborn the uh a brief moment of shardic level you know insight
2: and, and how interesting that he chose that moment to reveal something completely new. Yeah. It's, that is a <laughs> that's one of those don't try this at home, kids, kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, authorial moves where you don't you don't introduce something brand new, literally in the climax of the climax of your book. Um, but he did. And it worked.
1: Yeah, that's one of those things, you know, maybe this is more of a writing style point, but. It, it, it works because it's a hard magic system. It works because we know the rules, we know how the magic, uh, you know, the mechanics of the magic work, and so he can introduce something new like that and not have it feel like a total deus ex machina because we understand the, the, the underpinnings of why it works that way, even if it's not something we've ever considered before.
2: Sure. So let me uh, mention something else about Ellen's character as something that I really enjoyed from the entirety of this book, but especially the second half. Uh, And that's, yeah, as we talked about last time, if there's one word that sums up the entire, the the point, the moral of the story for the entire Mistborn trilogy, it would be trust, right? And Ellen is, uh, he's smart enough and mature enough that he learns Vin's lesson. So she brings this up a lot where at the end of book two, she's at the well of Ascension, the mist wraith stabs Ellen and she grabs the power and she's watching him die and she lets him go. She says, okay, well, you know, I, I I could save him, but if I do, I'll doom the world or so she thought. And so she releases the power and lets Ellen die. And, uh, and so in this book, you kind of get that, you get a few lines along this uh, uh, along this line of thinking where she says, you know, I let him go already. I'm kind of living on borrowed time here. And I love that Ellen is able to take the exact same lesson from her experience. That is true wisdom right there is when you're not able to just learn from your own experiences, but from the experiences of others as well. Uh, and so I, I really like that kind of wisdom that he displays in saying, you know, she's going to, she got captured, or she's off to Luthadel, or whatever the situation might be. He says, you know what, she can take care of herself. I'm going to trust her, and if she dies, then I, you know, I, I understand that that uh, the world is more important than my relationship. You know. Yeah. So he's a he. He truly is a good man. By the end of it, because of that. Uh, Uh, That wisdom that he has gained from her experience.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I had never considered it that way before.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that 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 hits the note that I wanted to hit with Ellen Venture. I really don't have much more uh, to go on with him. I've said everything I want to, and I've I've glowed as much as I want to about him. Um, Anything else about Ellen before we go into someone else? Like say Sazed. No, it's just (laughs) Sazed. Okay. (laughs) Let's jump into Sazed. You know, I've said for a long time now that Sazed is my favorite character in these books, and watching him slowly become more and more certain of himself is very rewarding. It it begins to it begins in the cavern below Urto, in a moment that I accidentally mentioned last week, which will be will be definitely bleeping out for that episode. Um I,
2: right. that I, I think I gave you point. like four or five straight minutes of bleep last episode.
1: Yeah, so. yeah. yeah well, <laughs>
0: Yeah, there is this. of course what I'm talking about here is, is Spook suggesting that they perhaps collapse part of the cavern as as, as he's, you know, as says it is, trying to figure out how to actually bring the waters back to the, the canals in Erto. Um, but I, I also want to draw a small aesthetic point here. Again, I'll talk about the audiobook really quickly because I have my original copy here. I've read it a few times, but the vast majority of my rereads have been while I'm working, while I'm welding, and I'm listening to audiobook. And Michael Kramer's rendition of says it is so so good um particularly during moments like this when he's talking to spook below the cavern there is this one moment that 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 he has where uh spook suggests hey i thought you were just gonna like maybe collapse the cavern or something like that and says i can hear the face palm in his voice where he just goes oh goodness no like, just, ugh, oh, like, Sazed is, is, is starting starting to come out of his shell. He's starting to have a much more direct and confrontational may, way of speaking. And this is really, <coughs> persona, or I should say, this is really, sim- uh, oh my god, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, exemplified, maybe. When he's talking to the first generation. And he's just like, oh, actually, I believe at this time it was the second generation, when he first arrives at the Condra Caverns. And they're just like, who are you, human? You are not going to be asking, I'm going to be asking the questions here and say, is it just like, "Uh, no, 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 you're not. I'm going to be the one asking questions here. I love seeing him finally confident in this, in this moment where he finally decides that he wants to be a believer. There is so much spiritual struggle, so much truth in there. It's just, it's hard not to bleed for the guy and, and it's, it's seeing him. You know, this this probably the biggest single surprise I've ever had reading a book. The Revelation, the, uh, he is the hero of ages. Like, loving it as much as I do, I am clearly thrilled to see him ascend, to see his faith rewarded, and to know that humanity is finally in good hands. You know, just top-notch work on Sanderson's part here. I love Sazen.
1: Yeah, you know, I I kind of talked last week about how I was sort of frustrated with Cezed's character arc through the first half of the book, and and I, I think that still you know holds true, but it, it there is definitely a a sense of relief at just you know finally Seized taking action into his own hands again, and 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 refusing to just wallow in his misery anymore. Uh, <laughs> that oh my gosh the, the, the end of this book is just so good
2: <laughs> it is in this book more than any other character in any of these three books has a journey that can be familiar to the average reader uh, the idea of a faith crisis. And it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a religious faith crisis. It could just simply be your worldview kind of crashing down and you having to deal with that, whatever form that takes. But oftentimes it is a religious thing. And uh, Brandon draws it so well throughout this book. Uh, unfortunately, I do, I am of the opinion that it goes on on the same note for too long. But he does but he does draw it well and believably where you know as you get to the end he gets to his last the last religion in his portfolio and he's kind of been putting it off because oh gosh what happens if i get to the end of it and this isn't the one you know and so he keeps putting it off that is something that i think would be familiar to anybody not necessarily the method that he goes about trying to rectify his faith crisis but just the faith crisis itself Knowing that, um, that everything you thought was true might be a lie
1: yeah and and the you know it going beyond just the personal faith crisis but also his crisis of identity, where he has spent you know his whole life preparing himself to do one specific task and then failed at it and and learning how to you know recognize that just because he he failed at this task of teaching religions to people in in the post lord ruler post final empire world just because he failed at that doesn't mean that he as a as a person is a failure you know that his you know he he is more than his task and he needed to discover that you know he needed to find meaning in what he was doing again
0: yeah and and you know, going on, uh, speaking about this religious crisis he finds himself in, I, th- I think I touched on this briefly last week, and I'll, I'll expand upon it now. Um, you know, for the first half of this book, like Drew, Sazed um, really, really frustrated me, especially on my first reread. And he, to this day, he still kind of does a little bit. Um, I think it's very heavily influenced by the time, or by the fact that at the time, reading this for the first time at 18 or 19 years old, I was a very hard atheist, at the time, I no longer consider myself to be a hard atheist, um, and I think characters like Sazed have really, over time, wrought that change in me, or at least Sanderson's approach to writing Sazed's crisis of faith has really influenced me quite a bit. Because I haven't found myself straying any closer to any particular religious beliefs as a result, but the, the, my my approach to speaking with those who are religious people, um, though like. He Sanderson through Sazed kind of managed to change my mind about what faith is and what it means to certain people and how it's more it's not simply as i considered it earlier just looking for an answer looking to be right but in the fact that it's just it's interpretation you know one who sees coincidence you know it, others M- will meaning, see meaning meaning where others see coincidence yes yeah. sorry sorry where others see coincidence yeah, I just watched The Matrix yesterday. I should have actually nailed that one. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. Sazed, Sazed affected me as a reader, and and other characters like, for example, in the Stormlight Archive, we have Yasna Kolin, who is not. To, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but I, on the off chance that I am, will bleep. She's a hard atheist, and she makes some very good points as well. I I love how Sanderson manages to approach faith in a way that's respectful. For both sides and how he manages to make it such a central part for one character without making it boring without making it seem like a waste of time on the other hand as well i just yeah i mean says is such such a huge character and there's so much to be taken from everything that Brandon did with him and if there's i think it's the reason why says my favorite character if
2: there's one thing that I think we can all take from Sazed's journey and and the journey of those around him, it's the idea of humility and not feeling like you have all the answers and not feeling like somebody else is an idiot for feeling like, you know, for thinking that they do have some answers. Um, and so it's uh, it's really easy to go about. Poo-pooing the beliefs of those or non-beliefs of those around us, and uh, and says it has to go on this journey to understand what, um, like, what am I trying to say? What other people's faith can do for them and, and can do for the world around them, and see some good in that, even if the way he sees it is well, there's it's not true. There's contradictions all over the place, and it's like, well, yeah, but that's not the point. And coming to that understanding is uh, is difficult for a certain type of personality and having a little bit of humility for your own uh, lack of perfection and that of those around you is uh, is a big lesson from him I think
0: yeah there there are two lines in the scene where he decides that he is no longer that, that he is that he wants to be a believer and that he will have faith. Um, one particular line that comes to mind is when he considers you know the fact does he want to be a skeptic does he want to does he want to be a believer at that point neither path seemed a patently foolish one i really really loved that line um i found that was very respectful for both sides and uh, especially where he makes that decision you know he i had asked for help and something answered and he has that moment that kind of not a eureka moment but a very a warm that that little glow that starts as he smiles and he considers you know breeze was right I was never meant to be an atheist. <laughs> you know, I, just, I, I loved how everything going forward from there, says it just picked up momentum. And he never stopped. It was just, oh, it, chef's kiss. So well done.
2: The, the idea of deciding what he was going to do and then doing it, where he says, you know, I'm, I'm essentially going to decide to have faith and then the faith comes. That's a formulation that a lot of people get exactly backward on in, in, in whatever context. It doesn't even have to be a faith-based context, but in that one particularly, it. or okay, let's take another one, for instance, um, somebody really wants to enjoy Scotch. Rob, I know you'll like this discussion. <laughs> you got
0: me. I heard you Where, got me a scotch, yeah.
2: You know, maybe maybe somebody uh, has had a hard time with scotch in the past. Yeah, like, oh, you know, it's not my favorite. But then they just decide at some point. You know what? Hey, I, I love the culture around it. I love the idea of scotch. I am going to enjoy this. And so they spend a month, you know, going after it and trying different varieties and different brands and whatnot. And, and, they, and because they decided first that they were going to love it. They, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, where you can decide what type of person you want to be and then make that happen.
0: Yeah. Yep. Committing. Committing is very important. Just, yeah, you oh, can't. Yeah,
2: it. you can't wait around for the sign or the you know whatever thing to happen to you. You can't wait for it. You have mm-hmm. to decide and then and then maybe it'll come to you.
0: Yeah. yeah. Sweet. That's everything I have to say about it. Again, for now, for Spook. now, uh, yeah. Spook. I have Spook, Tensoon Marsh, and Ruin to still discuss. Let's go on to Spook. Ooh. I'll start. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, how great was that? Sec was, was was Spook's arc in the second half of this book, or I, maybe I should just say the the book as a whole. When I read this for the first time, I was so floored by having such an incredible, vivid, redemptive, and unapologetically badass arc for a character that I had until that point really considered non-consequential, you know, unsurprisingly. I found myself agreeing with Breeze for once because I don't I'm not a huge fan of Breeze. I haven't mentioned that really before. Um but as as Breeze is talking with Sazed in the underground cavern about, about Spook and about how little they really know about this young man. And of course, this as I assume having been written when Brandon was in his 20s, you know? Um he wasn't yet far removed from his own teenage years. He, I think late 20s would have been when he wrote yeah. this, right? Uh, yeah, like this one it was published.
2: Or, uh, like, maybe uh,
0: maybe around 30. Well, uh, I think he was... Well, it was published in 08, so I think he was past 30 at that point. But, like, I'm 28 years old myself, and I assume that he wrote this years before it was published, or maybe he... Like, I don't know. He wasn't too far removed from that teenage self. And I've spoken at length about my first impressions of these books and other books, <clears throat> but it's easy to see that Sanderson can bring a lot of this feeling of coming of age with Spook's chapters. This theme of trying to find the man that he wants to be, but at the same time reconciling that with all of his hopes and his dreams. The scene that really comes to mind right now is where Spook is raising his glass and the and the pub folk are cheering his name, you know, Survivor of the Flames, Survivor of the Flames. Excellent. Like, it's 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 easy in moments like this to see how Ruin manages to overcome even naturally suspicious Spook, you know. But then he goes and becomes the hero that every teenager wants to be. And he's such an efficient self-insert character for a lot of Sanderson's audience. I imagine that it's, it's a great way to invest the reader – no puns there, I promise <laughs> – of what's happening in Urto. As the Fadrix storyline is it, – it, it could so easily overshadow everything else that's happening in this book. But because of how Sanderson approached everything that happened with Spook, I think it, it stands on its own. Uh, and it's just such – an awesome part of the of this of this book and it really it fits well with the whole and of course we know how important it is for spook to send that final message via goradel the fact that it's still ultimately tied to such a vital part of the of the of the climax so well done
2: so have either of you ever seen the devil's advocate
0: no, no. i just know of it as a phrase okay
2: it's a ridiculous movie starring Keanu Reeves from oh back in the 90s. <laughs> I've and, had so much uh, Keanu
0: Reeves already today. What a coincidence.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, Al Pacino plays the devil. And um, anyway, that, I'm, I'm not going to okay. go into this movie very much, but Al Pacino as the devil, a couple of times in the movie, he has this line where he says, Vanity is definitely my favorite sin. because uh, as the devil, he's able to use people's vanity to most effectively manipulate them. And Mm. I I kept having that line go through my head in the spook chapters, especially later on in this book, where he he talks about, you know, I'll never be weak again. Look at me, I I am like Kelsier. These people love me, and this city will be mine. And it's his vanity that allows Ruin to give him those nudges. And obviously, once he gets the spike in, it's... Uh, kind of game over at least for a little while but even with the spike in ruin can't control spook's thoughts and spook's thoughts give it away the reason that all of this stuff is so easy or what you know quote-unquote easy for ruin to do is because of spook's vanity um maybe an under or underappreciated aspect of his character
1: yeah i i like how that uh, that aspect of vanity and pride plays such a big role in his character development because it, it makes sense. You know, this was a guy who was always an afterthought. He he had no pride in what he was, and wanted it. He was around these these powerful, charismatic figures, and he wasn't that. But but he was jealous. You know, he he wanted that, and seeing him struggle once he starts achieving that. With you know uh, trying to retain the, the the core values that drove him through most of his life and and you know when this outside very crafty outside influence is exerting pressure on him that 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 character arc that struggle was one of my favorite things about spook and one of my favorite things about this book I think I said it you know last week i i Every time I turn that page and it's a new Spook chapter, I'd get excited. You know, I I loved reading about him. And he, to me, forms the backbone of this book. He's not necessarily the most flashy, but but his his character arc drives so much of what's going on and is so much more interesting from the get-go than a lot of the other characters. You know, they they don't have as dynamic of character arcs in, in this book as Spook does. You
0: know. Yeah, he has all of it, as far as I'm concerned. So, am not ten soon's part. No,
2: know, Knowing what we know about Spook's character, what he goes through in this book, and uh, all of that, does it make sense? I get, I, I'm only thinking of this now, so I apologize if this isn't a fully formed thought. <laughs> okay. But at the very end of the book, the uh, c- kind of um, epilogue where they all come out of the caves, and there's a stack of books, and we've got Villan- Vin and Ellen's bodies, and there's a note that says it has written and he writes it to spook. Does this make sense? Um, has, has spook earned that or, you know, I guess who else would it be? Who else would be in, in our leadership, <clears throat> uh, in, in the running for leadership here? I'm not sure. Um, I guess, I guess it does make sense from a certain point of view, but, uh,
0: I suppose of all of our remaining characters, Spook knows the most about what Ruin was doing, and he's I don't know seen the biggest consequences of his own actions as he almost burned down Erto because of his aggression. I don't know. I mean, to me, it, I never really I never questioned it. It it made sense to me, and I know of course going forward that he goes on to become. <laughs> so oh wait that might oh that's a spoiler. Let's believe that. Um.
1: But yeah, I, I never questioned it.
2: Myself. <laughs> That's I, I'm I'm not sure that there's any there there. I just uh, popped into my mind that who else would he have written that to?
1: Yeah, it, honestly, I'm in Rob's boat. I never really gave it much thought. I, it it was just so fitting for for the end. You know, because Spook has that you know that core character arc that having the epilogue specifically address him made sense.
0: Yeah, I think a big part of it. Now that I just now that I think about it, I you know, Sazed got to witness a lot of Spook's change of character from beginning to end, particularly with his final days there in Urto. So I think that that played a huge role in it. How many times? Yeah, I challenge you, you being anybody listening to this podcast, you know, go find how many times during Spook's, uh, I shouldn't say Spook's, during Sazed's points of view, especially underground below Urto, where he stops and he he thinks about his. Uh, impression of Spook and how they've all been wrong and how they really need to start changing how they look about him. And Caesar being there, having front row seats to all of the the major, the big points in Spook's
1: transformation of character, I think played a huge role in it. Yeah, yeah. Fair I mean, enough. I mean, and Spook, Spook himself had a, a, you know, a major a major impact on, on Caesar. You know, he was he was it, it always seemed like spook was the one who he may not have known what he was doing, but he was always the one who managed to say the right things to make says stop and think, you know, and, and reevaluate how he was approaching his, his own personal problems. You know, spook had a, had a bluntness to him, uh, an ability to kind of, Show to Cezed the absurdity of some of what SayZed was doing. You know, he he was the one who was able to to finally kind of punch through that armor. Yeah, you know, because he he was just a different kind of person. Hmm. Yeah. Sweet.
0: That wraps up everything I have written down for Spook. Anybody else? Nope. Sweet. Sweet. Uh, so Drew, no, you good? No, I'm I'm good. Jumping on a ten soon. Take a leap at that one? <laughs> sure. Yeah, okay. Um <clears throat> Ten Soon is great. You know, I I d I don't I really don't understand why he consistently ranks at the top of uh, many fan favorite like many fans favorite character in the series. You know, but he's he's a badass Condra. But I you know, I I I so many times see Ten Soon listed as someone's favorite character in polls and group discussions. I don't quite get it. What what is that? Do you guys are you guys as huge of a fan of Ten Soon as other people are cuz I'm just like, yeah, he's all right, but nothing particularly I, awesome.
2: I feel like we kind of talked about this last week and I don't know if I have any better answer than what I gave last week, which is that everybody loves a rebel. Everybody likes yeah, to think that sure. they are the one okay. I I am raging against the machine. And uh, they see Tensoon as that, and so it's a lot of fun for a certain kind of person to put themselves in his shoes, so to speak.
1: Um, and I'll, I'll add one more thing. People like dogs. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's, that goes into my next point here.
0: I'm so glad you just said that, Drew. People love dogs. It's so true. For those who don't know, which is, I imagine is probably everybody listening to this, I have a husky-shepherd mix. He's, mostly, he's husky. He's like 75% husky. Very easy to tell at a glance that he's a husky. And it's a little hard not to indulge myself in the occasional fancy where I picture Duke, my husky, himself running around in the Condra caverns, you know, Wolfhound knocking aside fragile seconds and arrogant fists, walking through Erto, freaking guards out with human speech. I actually, in the group chat, I sent you guys just like 10 minutes ago an actual picture of my dog, of my husky. Like, that's how I picture Tensoon. But, on the other hand, Tensoon, he's so not Tensoon in personality. He's so not. Nice. He's such a happy, go-lucky, shy, and submissive boy. Like, he's still a good boy. He's the best boy. But he's the dog that would gladly try and lead burglars, house burglars, to his shelf of treats. You know, and He'd try to shake paw as they walk out with our TV, our couches, with our cat, you know? But, um, yeah, it's just a stupid little fancy that I have there. Like, that's exactly how I picture Ten Soon, a wolfhound. He's like a husky. He's I, just, he, it's just i get a little glee out of it that's all
2: i definitely picture him i just sent a picture to you guys as more of an wow. irish wolfhound an irish wolfhound is oh, this big boy. giant thing uh giant of a dog wow um,
0: that is a that is a thick ass boy holy
2: damn yeah. that is a big dog that's that's always what i've you know something with enough uh enough power enough body mass to pack all those muscles in and Mm-hmm. All that, so yeah, that's that's. Uh... Oh, he's
0: also got a super horse.
1: This guy, that's pretty cool to, to, to think about that too. <laughs> like a Rashadium. Yeah, almost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't have a whole ton to say about Tensoon. Like he, he is enjoyable to read. Um, but I don't think he like I don't find him to be super interesting. In in. That sense, you know, like his chapters are fun. They tend to be action packed, you know, like
2: like a lot Craig of said. lore.
1: Yeah, right. A lot of
2: lore for somebody like you to dig into, Drew.
1: Right. Yeah. And so, so the things going on around tensun are interesting to me, but tensun himself is kind of he feels a little more like a vehicle for it than yeah. than a yep. a character that I really want to you know dig into and 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 I don't know. no
0: no, definitely see what you're saying like on that point i'll never forget that first time i read when Sazed has his little revelation and and he realizes that the terrorist religion is still alive and ten soon just straight up looks him in the eye and he's like yeah i thought you were going to drag this out of me a long like long (laughs) time ago you know there's so much going on around him and then Sazed asks him they still live on the original uh, pac-man who went to the well of ascension with with rashik and Tensoon just, like, so blase about it. Just, like, we call them the first generation. And as a reader, I'm sitting there going, Oh my god! Oh my god! Things are really starting to kick up at this point. I just... You're so right in saying that Tensoon like Ten himself, he's, he's an alright character, but everything happening around Tensoon, particularly lore-wise, as you pointed out, Craig, it's just top-notch. So every time... Even though I'm not a huge fan of Ten Soon, and I don't quite grasp the fandom's love for this character as drew said about spook previously every time i open a chapter and i see ten soon's name i'm like okay awesome we're gonna get some really interesting stuff to talk about on the podcast so there's that yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> what's going on drew i hear a ooh. oh just uh <clears throat> no it's a,
2: a it's a, a my uh, beverage yeah <laughs> I've got,
0: oh. I've got my,
2: I, I, I'm prepping already for, you know, an hour from now when we do our final draft. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I, on my timer here, I'm looking at, oh, I'm about to hit an hour recording the last time. Bang. Right there. That was an hour. So let's jump into it. Unless we have anything else about 10 soon. I want to talk about Marsh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so So, Go so ahead.
2: the first thing to note is the thing that a lot of first time readers don't notice Marsh, yeah, like, uh, uh, what's the old phrase? Um, I feel like I'm about to notice something. No, 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 you're not. It no, no brain matter. It, by the no eternal laws of comic books, he ain't dead. If there's oh, no yeah. brain matter, he ain't dead, right? So in our final confrontation, uh, Mish, uh, Marsh just kind of disappears, and we don't we don't see him anymore. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're a first time reader, then let that be noted. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes yes i can't i can't possibly say yes enough times and how excited i am because of that like above all of my other reasons for rhapsodizing about this book you know many of which i still admit are, are matters of personal taste marsh's story and this one is a huge factor in my and in, in, in why i consider this to be one of the best endings ever written what Sanderson manages to do with Marsh's character, like where he brings us, what he shows us in such a small proportionate amount of page time, relative to our protagonists, obviously, is <clears throat> just so masterfully done. I remarked last episode about how dark this book really gets. You know, our first line, like I said, Marsh struggled to kill himself. <clears throat> and this second half clearly continued that trend. It just got darker and darker. Yeah. But Marsh is our window into just what Ruin is up to while our main characters are scrambling all over the world and while they're looking for any way to respond. We have the killing of this random nobleman in this random village, the planting of Penrod's spike that follows. You know, obviously the really, really dark one that that disturbs me to this day, the killing of Captain Gorodel. Yeah. You know, Marsh in the bloodlust and just continuously screaming and hacking and just gore everywhere. But then we have Vin's final fight against the inquisitors and Lutherdel. Everything about Marsh is, in my opinion, accomplished not only with efficiency, but with triumph. Finding a way for Marsh to redeem himself and save the world in doing so with such a small action as ripping out Vin's earring. Mm-hmm. Just oh, I love how that how much that little moment of defiance he had been waiting for really changed everything like i i wish i had a third thumb so i could raise it with both of these ones marsh brought <laughs> like sanderson just nailed that character and everything that that character did I loved it. so pun time intended? for some time for some bubble bursting pun intended nailed. what did you Prended, say Ron? nailed it oh <laughs> oh god i wouldn't even notice nice he not said something jesus well done sorry go ahead
2: No, uh, so a little bit of bubble bursting is um, just... This is an event more than a character thing. Um, But the way, Drew, the way that you feel about Vin drawing on the mists in the first book, that's how I feel about Marsh ripping out the earring. What? Yeah, where it doesn't, to me at least, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, There is some... Okay, so, sorry, to set the stage okay. here, I I they're having it. their big yep. climactic battle. She's uh, she's killed all the other Inquisitor slash Lord Rulers. Uh, she's blown up Credit <laughs> Shaw and Mish, Mish, Marsh, Marsh is standing <laughs> over Vin and uh, he's about to kill her. And um, And he has reserved this small part of his brain, you know, this small part of his mind and then he realizes because he got the note from spook that was being carried by captain Gordell. He knows that the earring is a hemorrhagic spike and he needs to pull out the earring and it says something. I was just looking for it and I can't quite find it, but um,
0: I quote it for you at this point. He,
2: he, you know, he didn't think he didn't hesitate. He didn't, whatever. Yep. He just grabbed it and pulled it out, he reached and, out and
0: ripped the earring from Finn's ear. Yep. And
2: it's just, it, it's one of those tiny little things. It's a, it's, yeah, like i said drew it's like you, the end of uh, book 1 for you where you know it it can still be your favorite book but there's a moment that you just don't buy and i just don't buy this moment where if he has twitched a finger if he has done anything even remotely against the will of ruin ruin grabs him and turns him back toward his own purposes and so it i i don't I don't see a way where Marsh can notice the earring, make a move toward it and Ruin doesn't uh I have the answer. I have doesn't oh, okay all right and doesn't stop him. Anyway, all right, go ahead,
0: Rob. So there is a specific line that sort of tra- approaches this. And yep. it, it, this is also something that we see happening a few other times when Ru- Ruin has absolute control over anybody bearing multiple spikes except for moments of very tense emotional stress. He has trouble controlling the the coloss when they are enraged. He has trouble controlling himself. And the the line in this moment, right before he reaches out and rips the, the earring from Vin's ear, there's a very specific line that says, Amidst the thrill of killing the Hero of Ages, Ruin's hold wasn't as firm. Sure. Yeah, no, totally. So I think that's I, just part of AT's humanity showing through, part of his, like, uh, folly. Mm-hmm.
2: I get it. I mean, uh, intellectually, I get how that works, but um, for some okay. reason... Okay, it's just a bit
0: of a stretch to... to from
2: from the very first time I read it, I was oh, like, fair. wait,
0: really? Um, but, uh, but I, hey, I, that's just me. I do have to say, why would Marsh equate a tiny little hemoallergic spike <clears throat> to being such a threat? Why would he wait for that particular moment, for that little thing to be the hill he wants to die on the moment to show his hand to ruin it is a little kind of like does he have as much knowledge does, I, I, I don't know see marsh, why marsh is a pretty smart that. guy he's a smart guy no, no no it's not about his intelligence it's about like what information he has available to him like mm. he doesn't at no point during this scene does marsh realize that this is what's stopping vin from beating him so i can see why you'd question that i can see the validity of that i it's, and it's a, it's again a point. it I understand intellectually why it works. It
2: just feels yeah. a little bit weird. So I can, I can that's see that. that's I can all I'm saying. See that.
1: I think that's reasonable. Um, and and there there are a few things you know, just little nitpicky things like that um, that bug me. One of them is the way Vin talks about the mists, you know, pulling away from her, and and it's. You can probably hand wave it away because it is so vague there aren't specific instances discussed, but the implication that the mists have changed how they act around her doesn't hold up for me super well because if they're if they're pulling away from her because of this allergic spike, she she's had this spike in for most of her life. She talks about how you know, she felt the mists were, you know, embracing her and, and she was yeah. comfortable with them while she was training with Kelsier. But Kelsier told her, look, leave that thing in. Yeah. So why would the mists have been, you know, like, that, that doesn't align I think align it has to do with well Ruin's
0: yeah. warping of her mind and, and making her distrust the mists. I mean, we find out... Yeah, it's actually a spoiler. I'm not going to... I was about to say something that we found out in secret history. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think it's just—it's all—the the amount that the mists are repelled by Vin, I think, is directly related to just how much distrust Ruin has managed to instill in her of those mists.
2: Hmm.
1: Interesting.
0: He hadn't really influenced her too much yet in the Final Empire. He was still—I mean, he was still imprisoned yeah. obviously, but he he didn't have, like, the hold on her that he has— in the next two books particularly in this one as we find out later so i think it's just it also has a lot to do with her frame of mind and how much she trusts the mists and how much ruin managed to affect that maybe i mean i yeah, just yeah. i'm just throwing that forward i don't know that for a fact obviously i'm just postulating you, you
1: could you could probably you know wave wave your your magic cosmere romatics wand and convince me that there's some spiritual identity thing going on there and messing sure. with her connection yeah, yeah, i don't right. know but yeah. <laughs> so we're, all, we're we're getting close to lore though here i just i
0: mean i have said everything about marsh that i want to say i want to talk about ruin but it, before we move on from marsh i still want to give you guys a chance to get any final thoughts
1: out i I, eh. I don't have anything that we haven't really already talked about um he's
0: he ruin
2: regards him as a tool and that is the purpose he serves through the vast majority of this book i don't think he's that interesting but he is kind of fun to read regardless
0: yeah i'm so glad that you actually said that you used that word as a tool because it's such an awesome aesthetic thing that i totally forgot to mention in my style points that chapter where marsh of course intercepts goradel kills him reads the letter uh that that spook pounded out for vin and of course becomes so vital to the the chain the turning point of this of this book uh that scene begins and ends with this theme that that marsh first is sitting <clears throat> sitting there being buried in the i almost said in the mists in the ash like forgotten tool like a forgotten tool and then as that chapter ends Gorodel and the horse are left there behind being covered in ash the final words being like forgotten tools so i just really i wanted to draw that that was a very very um that was a very good point to make when you brought up Tools. That word. It, it really sparked that uh, moment of enthusiasm in me. There.
2: It it makes you wonder, uh, <laughs> Brandon Sanderson, as an author. Okay, so, Yeah. In this series, certainly, but in other ones as well. How does he regard his characters? Um, what you know? What shard is he most like? Well, you know, he feels pretty ruinish, as far as his uh, his ability to manipulate a situation and regard characters as tools means to an end and all that stuff so i, that's kind of a, said
0: I love the fact that you use the word ruinish i'm gonna start employing that in my vernacular <laughs> from now on
2: ruin yeah. it's like it's yeah. like it's like rubenesque which he also is but uh now we're gonna say ruinesque.
0: <laughs> i actually don't know that word rubenesque what does that mean
2: rubenesque uh, means uh oh, ro- rubenesque rotund
0: okay oh wow i learned a new word today <laughs> look at that and didn't even come from the subject material there you go.
1: Yeah, not not <laughs> too many not too many new words to learn in in uh, Brandon Sanderson's books because his no, uh, no, his editor no. just new ways let to apply those words it. and be inspired by them. <laughs> Hell yes. Yeah. Well, we yeah. we'll have a field day when we get to Stephen R. Donaldson and Gene Wolfe. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure we will. I understood eighty percent of those books. Yeah. <laughs> oh man.
0: So, ruin. Can I talk about Ruin real quick? Yes, go for it. Okay, um, I already said. Actually, this first point I said earlier—the laughter in the dark cavern as he sheds that facade and reveals himself—the Kree factor is so real. I so badly want this to be produced for the screen. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, and such a huge part of it is this scene. But on that on that fact, his mannerisms, the way he he shows himself and he acts, the way he comports himself—I just love this guy. And I and I don't mean that like I like him as a character, obviously, but. How Brandon handles this, the subtlety, the intimidation of this character, the clever ploys, the almost inhuman presence, but just human enough to make you wonder. His, his one-on-one scenes with Vin as Reen yeah. were definitely my favorite incarnations, if that's the word I want to use, of his. And, I, and to this day, still to this day, I get chills in several moments of his. Particularly as Vin is talking with Yeoman, there's this moment when Ruin is... Unseen by everyone else in the room walking in circles. I picture him with his hands clasped behind his back Musing about his victory talking about Yeoman This chilling moment where he's miming applause as he realized that Vin herself is up to some manipulation there It's just such a powerful image that line that drives hard So hard, you know six six eyes two incorporeal too physical, too steel, turned to regard her, yeah. and when she says something, I just ah. Oh. And of course, Ruin's most epic line of all time: "I am mountains that crush, I am waves that crash, I am storms that shatter, I am the end." What an insanely cool villain that we got in Ruin. I was not ready for that. I thought it was going to be more like, I don't know. I didn't expect him to have these mannerisms and to be so, well, I guess, human, but yeah. also respect it for it. It's just so cool. Yeah.
1: I I liked that aspect of how Brandon created the shards, you know, the 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 idea, the mechanic behind it where, you know, you can have these omnipotent, you know, godlike entities and powers, but that there is still a human element to them. You know, that you can you can get a little bit of that humanity coming through the inscrutable you know, unapproachable power.
0: <laughs> hmm. Yeah, Craig. Ruin.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah,
0: he's the persona. <laughs> <laughs> he, <laughs>
2: where, where you, you have um, Gandalf is uh, is Tolkien in the story? Oftentimes, <laughs> uh, Ruin is clearly Brandon Sanderson <laughs> in the story. Okay, that's a joke,
0: but. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that. I was like, yeah. interesting. Okay, I was gonna entertain that for a bit. Yeah.
2: No, yeah, he's ruin. He so he would be as a as an author. He would be one of the more fun characters to write because you can write something like, "I am mountains that crush. I am waves <laughs> that what well, you know." You can write something yeah. like that that would be utterly ridiculous in any other character's mouth, and you can do that, and y- you can just see. This is where. Sanderson's strengths come out, right? When he wants to come up with the clever lines, he wants to come up with the good stuff. Most of the time, his prose is, as uh, as has been famously noted, is the clear glass through which you see the story, right? Mm-hmm. But he wants, just like anybody else who writes, he wants to come up with the good lines. And uh, he is, again, in my opinion, not very good at that when it comes to the humor, but when it comes to epic lines, mm. He does him well, and you I need a so character much. like Ruin to let those out. So this is uh, what I, I'm joking when I say that this is Sanderson in the story. But what I, I guess what I really mean is this is where Sanderson really gets to shine uh, more than with any other character.
0: Yeah, this is. Yeah. Yeah. That Ruin is his is his, you know, his mouthpiece with which he used to uses to sing, you know, like like, ah. Uh. I can't wait, or I should say, I can't wait to see what he does with <laughs> later in the in the, in the Starlight Archive. But we've seen some. Of <laughs> okay, let's let's bleep that. Sorry, let's let's. I'm gonna retract that a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I just I love seeing Sanderson approach direct confrontations and direct conversations with the shards or the personalities behind the shards. However, you want to distinguish how much you want to distinguish the two. Yeah. Sweet. That's all of my character points. Yeah, I'm ready to go into my miscellaneous and some uh,
1: theories. Yes, I. I that's uh, that's all I've got left to talk about is, is a couple Any of other? miscellaneous points and then and then get into lore and and whatnot. Sweet.
0: Character points, Craig. You uh, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is where we take off our our gloves and we start talking spoilers freely. All right. So if you haven't read. The entirety of Sanderson's Cosmere, I would say probably a good time to uh, to peace out. Thank you for listening. Because at this point, I'm going to just, I'm going to, we're going to dive right in. Vinley is uh. a Mistborn. Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That one took me by a little bit by surprise. Although, <laughs> it'd be kind of cool to see. It would be a little cool to see a Mistborn Parshendi, wouldn't it? Ooh. Um, so... Oh, oh! Sh- just to start off the fact here, actually, this isn't even much of a spo- This isn't a spoiler for the Cosmere White as a whole, but just as far as my miscellaneous points goes, one thing we forgot to talk about last week, just a small revelation, mm-hmm. relatively small revelation, but still really cool, huge, impactful moment. This revelation about the Kolos oh, and their yeah. origins. Yeah, I am human. You know, like, as you can tell, I've been listening to Kramer's dulcet tones in the audiobook. The way Sanderson managed to bring everything back around. To that line, those three words, right in our moment of eureka, I thought was such a nice way to add that extra bit of impact to this particular revelation. Just bravo. Yeah, yeah. Bravo. That's a miscellaneous point. I'll pass Um, off the ball to you guys, see what you make with it. If
2: if you want me to, I I don't have anything else to say on that point particularly, but I will say, how, and this kind of goes back to the style thing, is it? A little bit weird that human gets a pov in the middle of one of the final chapters <laughs> it
0: was surprising.
2: I, it's it's a little bit odd to me so uh, for those who don't recall uh in, in the very last scenes of the story when the battle is taking place at the entrance to the cavern of the chandra homeland uh the Coloss have overrun and they're running through the caverns they see the and so we get a human the Coloss. We get his point of view, and he bursts through the door and sees a bunch of women and children, and you think, oh, crap, they're going to massacre everybody. But he kind of turns away because they're looking for the ATM. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's just a little bit like, uh, as a reader, every time I get to that part, I'm like, couldn't you have given me somebody else's <laughs> POV? Like, a- anybody you else. something. Just because the Koloss are so foreign and uh and rudimentary in their thinking it just um I, I i don't care for that pov but anyway maybe that's just me
0: i, I can see it as brandon just wanting to perhaps approach that avenue let's see what he could make with it i mean it's very very short it's like yeah it's three very short paragraphs or something like that near the end. But I think, you know, there was also the question that says it had risen in the uh, the epigraphs before it about the question of humanity in the coloss and the, the, the reuse of spikes over mm, time. Right. And the recycling of spikes and how maybe it lent more humanity to the coloss over time because they were losing their hemorrhagic charge in between uh, settings. And, uh, like, I just, I myself, I think it's really, really great that you brought this up because... I do want the astute reader to notice that Marsh at the end, well, actually before Marsh at the end did this, it was, we, we definitely saw one of the second generation telling another kolos to sell a bag of atium. And we saw Marsh chondra. holding... Sorry, what did you I say? You said
1: another kolos. Oops!
0: No, <laughs> another chondra. My bad. And we saw Marsh holding... A bag of atium at the end and this was supposedly after ellen had burned the entire stockpile all of ruin's body and also i want to point out that in era two the last book is called the lost metal yeah make of that what you will
2: we also get the uh, title of book two in era two in these chapters
0: shadows okay oh, i'm so glad you brought this up i wasn't sure if i wanted to talk about it shadows of self uh yeah the sliver
2: remains yes. the shadow of self
1: mm. yes so.
0: that is the one of the first generation
2: oh. uh, yeah i don't drew you're far more qualified than i am to talk about that it just kind of jumped out to me that's oh,
0: all I, I want to point out that waxillium at one point says in his internal narrative he thinks he can almost see moments in the mist where it seems to form the outline of a young woman. When he's considering the, God, what do they call her in Era Two? the 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 Ascendant Warrior.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Ascendant yeah. Warrior. Yeah. So sorry, go, I can tell you're chopping at the bit there, Drew. Go ahead, run uh, away with it, uh, I, I I didn't have anything you know particularly you know urgent to say on on that topic. Um, I just yeah, like I had a couple of random points. I I did note. I'm wondering uh, in in your copies of Hero of Ages if if this is a a still current error or not, but uh in, okay. in chapter forty four, when Vin is going down into into the cavern and you know she sees all the work that's been done on the door and, and she thinks, you know, why break it open like this? He has a mistborn who could have opened the door with a steel pull. But it that should be an iron pull. Uh,
2: mm, uh, oh really? Yeah. Great question. Uh, now we're gonna have 40- to pause the recording and find
1: out. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I got my my copy right here. Okay, chapter forty-four. Da, 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 da. It's a couple of pages in. Yeah, because I have a you know I have I have the e e book version, which I would have expected got updated if they fixed it. But it also I don't think my e book edition has been updated with all the the fixes and things from the tenth anniversary editions. So. I Yeah,
2: my I have a first edition, so that one definitely says steel pole, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to look it up.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, steel pole. There's a big there's a big greasy rusty thumbprint right on that word too for my <laughs> welding hands when I when I was holding this out one day at work on lunchtime, but yeah, I see it right here, steel pole. Um, yeah.
1: hang on. It's also an italics. Yeah, the real question, is it fixed in the leather bound?
0: Okay, checking now.
2: Uh, you guys, oh, you know,
1: Craig's got the, oh,
2: continue on with whatever you're doing. I'll I'm so jealous that you have
1: the leather bound of
0: this book. Like this, like I've said this before on a previous episode, and I'll say it again. This <laughs> is, as my life currently stands, my favorite, I don't want to say it's my favorite book, it's my favorite ending. I always considered it my favorite book of all time. I think The Way of Kings may have superseded that, just in terms of how I view books differently now that I see them, now that I read them in the way that I do for the podcast. But Hero of Ages, I've always said, is my favorite book of all time. Does it
1: still say Steel Pole?
0: It says Iron Pole. Nice.
1: Ooh, there it is. In the, uh, in the 10th done. anniversary well leather
0: bound edition, it has been Team corrected. Brand. Oh my God. I will, uh, can I just look at that leather bound real quick? Just I want to see it. Oh, it's so gorgeous oh my god that's so beautiful easy oh easy god, so beautiful. down rob down <laughs> rob i know i have to just shift my is, pants is this here a little bit uh, is, is this when
1: when i can drop a little teaser uh for yeah. for any interested listeners uh stick around for our um our stormlight archive episodes because you know we haven't decided how exactly we're going to do it but we will be giving away a set of way of kings leather Bounce.
2: Oh my. Oh my. I think I need to shift my pants now.
0: Yep. Yeah. So. Yep, I don't even have a leather bound edition of any of his books myself as of yet. Although I the dream obviously is to own a complete set someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm on Can you my imagine way. all of the Cosmere, like thirty six or forty books, whatever the hell it's going to be at this point, all in leather bound? Oh yeah. That'd be such a that'd be like walking <laughs> into a room full of gold. Yeah, you just drop to your knees and just
1: weep. I I can't upon... wait to see what some of the you know the later Stormlight books look like you know as cuz yeah. the the coloration you know each each one is going to be themed for you know the color for each order and oh i thought they're all going to be blue no. <gasps> so like words of radiance is going to be that that red and <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay we're good we're in the game yeah there some of those later books are going to be so freaking cool right all right back to miscellaneous um, points i think. yeah yeah uh I, I just had one other miscellaneous point, uh, and I wanted yeah, to I like point six. out. Uh, we have a, a reference to trell in in this book. We do. Sazed is is you know going through his religions Again. and yeah and, and same and reference basically yeah. as always. I will make you know I will point out the distinction. The trell that Sazed is talking about this religion is not the same religion as it is in Mistborn yep. Era Two. This is trelogism versus trellism. Uh, but but the name the name is important. I mean, there, there's clearly something, uh, and I, I you know I I have long espoused basically ever since I read the uh, the White Sand prose back in like 2013 or whatever it was, and I saw the name Trail there. I asked Brandon Sanderson at on the Shadows of Self tour if that Trail was connected to the religions on Scadrial, and of course. I hadn't read Shadows of Self yet. It was the Denver signing was the day the book came out. So I had just picked up my copy at the bookstore. And I had no idea. I thought I was, you know, this was some random little lore tidbit. and wouldn't really be that important. Little did I know what was coming at the end of Shadows of Self. But uh, I asked him and and he said, yeah, you know, he's like good eye, you know, he's connected there. And I reading through this, it, it struck me. Just this read, the people who worship Trill are the Nelazon. Yeah, that is a very yep. Teldane sounding name. Oh, is it? Yeah, because yeah, I actually haven't read the prose or the graphic novel of White Sand yet. That is a very Teldane sounding name. The the, okay. the structure of you know the 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 word structure the Z. In there the there there are a lot of a lot of places and names in white sand that sound like Nelazon yes,
0: okay, sweet. I actually have that I like, think a, a very similar point written down here in my miscellaneous points, you know, according to Sazed, there's a people than the Nelazon that worships their god trell <clears throat> and and just oh, it's <laughs> it was a really, really cool moment for me, you know, hearing that name one more time mm-hmm. <clears throat> no, I still have actually quite
1: a few. I mean, yeah, like, like I, I'm just well, you know popping up on on Coppermind. There's a character named Sharazan. There's a place named Kazare, Kursta. You know, Lrezare. Okay. You know, these are Nelazan belongs right in there with those kind of names. Like, <laughs> interesting. So, I, I think that's just one more one more uh, bit of circumstantial evidence uh behind my trail as an avatar of autonomy theory so yeah no i and i fully i fully am on that boat right there
0: so i've known you for long enough i've been convinced for <laughs> yeah sure. uh, um i i wanted to talk real quickly and i said i gave a, a small hint on this earlier i want to talk about eridan yeoman uh yeoman yeoman what the hell am i just trying to say here I didn't write enough about this guy to give him a place in my characters for discussion, but I do want to say that I just, I, I want to draw a point to say I appreciate this guy in a way that's sort of hard to articulate. The fact that somebody's so bland, all things considered, he doesn't have allomancy, or at least he doesn't have, sorry, he doesn't have misborn level power, I should say, yeah. to match either of our two main protagonists, nor does he have the power to match any of our, our enemies, like even a basic colossus Seems like it could kill this guy, of course, until we find out that he can burn ATM. The fact that he can still pose such a threat to them, just as an obligator, that it, it, it's, it's a little hard not to gush about ho- how cool it is to see a writer on the caliber of Sanderson take that creative step into this character's shoes, have the opportunity to be clever, to throw unorthodox and creative puzzles at them. The surprise raid and, and the killing of half of Ellen Venture's Kolos. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Brilliant move. Capturing Vin by o- using her own curiosity against her. Brilliant. Stalemating her with Teldon Hastings, using cold logic to overpower her to take that sedative. Like, even even the points he makes when he's you, near the beginning of the book, or not the beginning, I should say the halfway point, when he's talking with Ellen one on one at the ball, and he's pointing out Ellen's hypocrisy in assuming the role of emperor over the legally elected person Penrod. I just, I love this contrast that Brandon makes a point to show between Yeoman's bearing and his level of competence. I think Yeoman is such a highly underrated character, and he deserves a lot more talking about.
2: I, I don't know that he's underrated. I, uh, From what I know of how people talk about him, I'd say he's perfectly adequately rated. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> but But there is, there is more going on with him than maybe people would realize at first glance. He is, as you've mentioned, Rob, uh, he is a match for Elland in his scholarship and his uh, intelligence. He's a match for Vin in his cunning
1: mm-hmm. and
2: his ability to uh, to turn a situation to his advantage. Uh, but then he also serves a purpose narratively in just showing us that there is such a thing as an ATM misting. And so we get that as a nice bit of foreshadowing and it's a way for that not to come out of nowhere at the very end of the book and it also in fact i would say puts him on par power wise with both vin and elland because if you're burning atm it's game over yeah uh, and yeah. and we get to see a little scene of that when he slices elland uh, at the ball mm-hmm. uh, which it sounded more like he was, you know, uh, knifing his groin than I meant, <laughs> but <laughs> but so, you know what I mean. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, he he serves a lot of purposes in this book, and I I think people like him plenty. You know, going back even if they don't what? understand
1: why. Going back to that topic I brought up earlier about changes. Sorry, in the guys, mis- I'm going to take a leak. Keep talking, Drew. I can still hear you. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> going back to what I brought up earlier about changes to the in the Mistborn screenplay from the books, one of the other things that Brandon has said he's planning on doing is making it that all Allomancers can use Adium.
2: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Ooh, I don't know about that.
1: That, that uh, if if you're a Misting, you, you can use your One Metal and you can burn Adium. He said there are there are some, like, realmatic reasons behind it that that he thinks it should be able to, you know... To work that way hmm. and, and that he probably should have written it that way to begin with um but i'm really curious how he's going to handle yeoman's character and how he's going to handle you know the mist fallen and the you know the the big climactic twist in hero of ages whenever he gets to writing that screenplay because that's a pretty substantial change and uh it's gonna mean you know it's gonna mean making some you know, some, uh, some edits.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will go, go, go on record as saying, I hope he does not make that change. Yes. Um, I, ch- change my mind. Fine. I hope he does, you know, <laughs> but as of, as of right now, that sounds like
0: a bad idea. I, I, I'm glad you said that craig because i was just returning to the room here and i heard drew speaking the whole time and my uh, originally i just ran back here to say what the hell did you just say (laughs) what that 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 completely first of all first of all thank god you muted yourself yeah (laughs) so no definitely (laughs) because like what well that would completely eliminate like for example there's this moment in the final empire when Kelsier and Dachshund are talking to Hammond, and they mentioned Vin, and they say, you know, Marsh caught her rioting his emotions, or soothing his emotions, I think it was, and Hammond's like, oh, soother, eh? You know, we could always use another one of those, and then Kelsier goes, actually, turns out he she was rioting his emotions as well, and Hammond's like, Oh, now that's really interesting because that immediately shows the reader that once you ha- you either have one elementic power or you have them all. So I think this does a huge disservice to that whole uh, that whole revelation, that whole plot point. I I really, really, really hope he doesn't do that, like. Oh, I don't know. I guess it goes it goes a long way in, in, in giving ATM more value, though. It, because so, I suppose you could argue that ATM is kind of restricted a little bit in its value, that it's only usable by Mistborn, or uh, until we find out the end, ATM misting.
2: Yeah, I, I the reason I hope he doesn't go through with that change is, you know, he might have, like you said, Drew, some kind of realmatic uh, explanation for it, or a reason why this needs to be the case, or, you know, whatever, but... The whole structure of his foundational series is based on none, one, or all. Yep. The whole magic system is based on that. So if he changes that for an adaptation, then... uh, Especially if it's not some other screenwriter making that change. If he is the one who makes that change and says, okay, this is canon now. Well... Yeah, what does that do to our to our you know beloved Mistborn trilogy?
1: I I, I, I will say I don't, I don't think know. he would make that a canon change. No, I don't maybe. think he would make that a canon change. But but yeah, okay. it, it, it is gonna be very interesting to see how if if you know if that's even what happens. But yeah, I was right. of of all the things he talked about changing, my eyebrows raised you know, crawled further toward my hairline <laughs> than uh than anything, than anything else, else, you know. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, that's a that surprised me to hear and I really hope he doesn't do that, but I do also have a trust in Brandon Sanderson that I don't have in a lot of other people. So, trust, faith, what? Ah, uh, <laughs> I uh, I see what you did there. Okay. Um Okay, what else do I want to talk about here? Okay, so here's a bit of a theory that I... Not a theory, but just something I want to discuss. I want to toss this ball at you guys and see what you make of it. Rashik, the Lord Ruler, the man who Mm. took the power for himself and dominated the world, become their god-emperor. Did he grant himself a spike? And I'm going to go on here first, real quick. I know it sounds, in a way, kind of dumb, but, damn it, doesn't he specifically mention in the secret plaque beneath Fadrix? That he constantly hears Ruin's voice in his head whispering to him. He expresses concern that Ruin is corrupting him. And we also can see how he's changed from this concerned leader that we read about in the Steel Plates to this arrogant and downright evil entity that we got in the final empire. I just, I can't shake this feeling that we still have more to learn about the man who was Rashik, or maybe just the ancient terrorists themselves. Don't, sorry, go ahead.
2: Don't forget that he, uh, uh, what says it's power? Not hemology, it's uh, ferrochemical. So, the Lord Ruler's ferrochemical bracers, Right, the yeah. things along his arm Oh, they pierce his skin. in fact, pierced say, yeah. through his skin.
0: Oh, yeah, I totally forgot that they pierced his skin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's how Ruin was able to communicate with him and, and whisper in his head. Yeah, right. Oh, God, okay, <laughs> there we go. Thank so. you, Craig. I was, like, ready to go off on this whole 10-minute tangent of, like, <laughs> well, we don't know enough about this, you're, and it's you're welcome. but we don't have a... You're welcome, <laughs> dear you. listener. I saved you. <laughs> um... There's another detail we get from Sazed about the ancient terrorist prophecies that I also want to throw at you guys. And I we want to see what you make of it again. For many years now, and I'm sure you've both seen this many, many times, the prevailing theory amongst a lot of the fandom has been that, of course, Adonalsium is somehow going to be reforged. And that many, like and, many and, people shall, and shall that-
2: be renamed
0: Narsil. <laughs> Real. The, the flame of the cosmos. Solid Tolkien reference right there. Okay. Oh, man. you know, many has suggested that this may be Hoyd's goal. Or maybe others have suggested that this could be what Hoyd's trying to prevent. Obviously, I think this is the most common theory that I've seen proposed across all of these groups that I follow. I don't personally buy into that belief, either of those. But there was a small tidbit, something I need to quote. When Sazed is talking to the first generation, I think it was just... As they realize the mists have vanished, the conjure realize that. Sazed asks of the first generation, Isn't this what your own prophecies say? That which has been sundered must again begin to find its whole. I want to focus on the wording here. Not must find its whole, but begin to find its whole. Now, call me crazy, but the wording here I think is very ambiguous. Which in itself is a little odd when you consider. Like, we learn eventually that the words of the prophecies are chosen very, very carefully. We have the gender-neutral pronoun for the hero. We have this point about the hero having the power to save the world on his arms. Not his shoulders, not his hands. But here, we have this word, begin. It must begin to find its hole. To me, it sounds like it implies that it has more to do afterward. So, I don't know. I want to see what you guys make of that. I don't buy this that LCM is going to be reforged. But damn it, moments like this make me think.
1: Well, I would say there is... Uh, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I don't think that's the, the end game of the Cosmere. Uh, I think there may be some people who want that. But I sure. something tells me that's not where Brandon's going with this. However, this makes two different religions in two different series that have beliefs and prophecies about a singular entity that has been broken up and will come back together.
0: Oh, we also want to point out that we know, we have words of Brandon, that the ancient
1: terrorists were very realmatically aware. Yes, So we... Have, uh, they knew about the three... The Irriali, What's the other one, Drew? The Iriali Long Trail on Roshar. The uh, uh, okay. the one which separated itself in, into all people so it can experience all things, and when, when the mm. sum of experiences have been attained, it will re, re-coalesce or whatever... Um, interesting Yim the the cobbler who gets killed in I love Yim yes in uh, Words of Radiance kind of thinks about this philosophy gotcha this this makes two, two religions in two different series on two different worlds that at least touch on the same phenomenon so that is definitely worth keeping in mind
2: well and if we know anything from Sazed's collection of religions it's that you gotta pay attention to all of them because they all share a kernel
0: of some truth right yep yes it's the, the he's yeah i oh god i love that whole plot point that says it and, and that that first generation member who tells says it i think you're looking for something that cannot be found and that is a that, like a, a faith that requires no belief uh, a, a religion that requires no faith yeah there it is thank you yes I, like, I just, I love that that whole plot point. That's one of these moments where I, as a hard atheist at 18 years old, 19 years old, reading this is going, oh, oh, okay, that makes a little more sense. Okay, so I just, uh, I love the extra, the, the picture I get to see because of that. Mhm. So I have one, no, sorry, two little points left. One's a small aesthetic thing. This, this may be something that, again, may be addressed in a future volume. Um but there's a there's a discrepancy in one particular line that's very, very important. Kelsier tells Vin in the first book that the mists and I quote they they hide you, they protect you, they give you power. near the end of the book, I think and near the end of the first book she might uh, that line might come forth again. Oh, yeah. but for a fact, I know that we get this at the end of this book right before Vin ascends and she takes in the mists. Hiding you, protecting you, giving you power. But, in secret history, from Kelsier's point of view, in the cognitive realm, that quote is ever so slightly different. We hear his voice in Hero of Ages saying, hiding you, protecting you, giving you power, just before he, as we know, having read secret history, relinquishes the shard, gives it to Vin. But, in secret history, Kelsier says, hiding you, protecting you, Giving you the power. Hmm. There is an extra the in there, and that's always bothered me more than I think I deserve to be bothered by it. But I don't know. Like there's that extra the that's lost in translation. Having both viewpoints from Vin and from Kelsey are in this moment, but they don't. The the quote doesn't exactly match up, and it sort of bothers me.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I uh... never picked up on that.
0: Check it out. Hiding you, protecting you, giving you power. We hear that at least yeah, three yeah. times, probably more, in this trilogy.
2: Yeah, that sounds. I I think you're perfectly reasonable to find something like that and point it out. I my my initial gut check sense of that is that is uh, Sanderson being further along in his understanding of his own mythology. And so adding a the in there just because he understands that it's, uh, that, okay. you know, that this is a capital P power that he's talking about now, not just mm-hmm. not just some magic system that he made up.
0: I, some nebulous amount of, yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I could sure. be wrong, but uh, that it doesn't feel like it's significant to our understanding of the Cosmere. It feels more like it's significant to his own understanding of the Cosmere.
1: That makes sense.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. My last miscellaneous point here is just a, a funny little side note. And I mentioned this earlier in the episode. I legitimately just happened, in, and I swear entirely by chance, to have rewatched the entirety of the Matrix trilogy since we last <laughs> recorded, you know, the Hero of Ages part one. And I find it very, very amusing to be reading another climactic scene, it, indeed another climactic ending to a trilogy happening in an empty city at night in the rain with superhuman fights the coincidence (laughs) there was just not lost on me i was chuckling through both
2: i yeah i have
0: nothing to say about that but okay all right (laughs) i didn't think anybody would i just wanted to point that out it made me laugh a little bit and that's the end of all my miscellaneous points it's the end of my theory crafting for now anybody else before we head into
1: favorite scenes uh yeah let's uh let's head on in unless craig has anything else Nah, i'm good okay favorite scenes i'll start Third place,
0: my third place favorite scene, Marsh ripping the, the earring from Vin's ear. The way she returns to consciousness, she has this final, like this scene ending line as Marsh has finished, you know, as we can see and, and finished being disturbed by breaking every bone in her body that he can think of. He reaches for this obsidian axe. He's back under the control of ruin, swinging it at her head and she caught his arm. No, no, I take that back. Not just catching his arm, the imagery we have there. Marsh screaming with that swing of his axe. The splash of rainwater and ash as he does. And then she catches his arm. There is just no way that should this series ever get a faithful adaptation to the books that this is not an extreme close-up shot with her catching his wrist. I picture lightning flashing in the background and then the scene cuts away. Just... (laughs) uh, 12 out of 10. A (laughs) top-tier spectacle from Sanderson once again. That... That
2: imagery, that moment of her catching the arm, there is nothing that he could have possibly written that would have been more cliche. And yet... (laughs) And yet, it works. Because, you know what? Cliches are often cliches for a reason. And in this case, it's a cliche because it's excellent and it works. And uh, the drama pays off and all that stuff so yes i i do love that moment even if i don't buy the earring tearing uh bit i do love that imagery catching the arm it's fantastic
1: air on the side of awesome there's a justification right there There you go so craig what's uh (laughs) what's your third favorite scene in this book
2: what did i have a second favorite scene
1: well well no so because we're Uh, doing our three favorite scenes and starting you know like okay okay, okay our third and then the
2: second, <laughs> yeah. So I think um, I, I think I'm going to point to again, this is an aesthetic thing. So just, you know, maybe a cliche, but who cares? Because cliches are awesome sometimes um, when I want to say it's 10 soon. Who does it for the first time when he crests a hill? He's he's searching out Vin. Uh, he's heading toward Urto or he's trying to get up to Fedrax or whatever. Uh, he crests a hill and sees a lava field. And essentially, the entire earth has opened up and is spilling its guts and the fire and destruction and uh, and heat everywhere. That moment when he crests the hill and you kind of get the sense as a reader. This is it. like things have been really bad, right? There's too much ash. The mists are here during the days. Whatever. Things are awful. And then when you see that, no, the, the entire central dominance, it seems, is kind of covered in lava. It's like, oh, Oh, it's the actual end. Oh, so that yeah, I, I love that little bit, just a tiny little moment.
0: Yeah, no, and I think it's definitely worth mentioning that there are two there's two moments from Ten Soon's point of view that that go hand in hand here on either side of the focal point of the climax where Vin. It starts to a starts to ascend and we get to witness this in real time as it happens first as you mentioned Craig He, he crests this hill and he sees the earth literally splitting and just fields of lava and the earth is that that's it It's over and that that scene that point of view scene with Ten Soon ends. It's over He was too late, but then we go back to a few other characters one of whom is Vin she gets their earring ripped out of her ear. She starts to ascend, and then we pick back up with Ten Soon in a very similar moment where he realizes the mists... At this point, though, everything seems to be ending, but the mists are gone, and because of that fact, Ten Soon realizes, oh, oh, it might not be too late. Oh, yes, and then he starts running because he gets more motivation there. I just loved how both of those fell on either side of the focal point
1: of the climax. Very well done. Nice. So yeah, o- so, honestly, yeah. picking three favorite scenes was really difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh god. Yeah, there, there are so many, so many great scenes. I could scenes. Have picked fifty. But uh, <laughs> for my third, I'm going with the first ball in Fadrix when the 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 wonderful entrance that Vin and Ellen make, and then the scene with them dancing. You know, two Mistborn dancing. It's just it's a wonderful moment. It's a uh, one of those scenes that sticks in my head i i can so vividly picture that and and you know that you know when when this gets made into a a movie that they're keeping that scene because it is so picturesque and it's such a wonderful little moment so
0: yeah
2: sweet so far it's all a bunch of aesthetic stuff so i'm into it yeah yeah
0: well, I also love the fact that they're burning pewter at that point, so you know that, that they are dancing with such grace yes. that almost like, oh, I should say almost superhuman, blatantly superhuman <laughs> grace, that it's just like, ah, oh, it's pretty cool, yeah. It's going to be a cool scene to watch if we get to see that one on the screen someday. Oh, yeah. um, my second favorite, I'll start with the second favorite scenes here. I I couldn't decide which of the two biggest revelations rocked me. To insert here, um, Ellen figuring out that he suddenly has an entire army of Allomancers with him in Fadrix, and the Coloss immediately charging as Ellen realizes, "Uh oh, Ruin has been watching, and now he knows what I just found out." But d- damn it, there is this that scene with Demu where Ellen tells him, "Eat this, eat that nugget of ATM, and Demu looked up, eyes widening, and Ellen smiled. That's about it. Like, 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 that has to be the single greatest combination of eight words in the whole <laughs> landscape of epic fantasy, as far as I'm concerned. I get goosebumps every single time I read that line. I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about it. Sanderson has this dramatic flare with these revelations that just make me giddy. I don't know how to articulate how excited they make me. So well done. Demu looked up eyes widening. And it's and also Ellen
2: smiled. it's also a master class in not forgetting every piece of your chessboard of a story uh, where yes. you could see you could see another author forgetting that ruin would figure that out. But Sanderson immediately writes it in where the Kolos, as soon as Demu starts burning the metals, the Kolos start charging. Yeah. Because Ruin is, uh, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, but he's pretty close in this story. Yeah. Uh, and so as soon as they figure it out, he figures it out and they start charging. Yeah, it's great. Great moment. I agree with you.
0: Sweet. Awesome. Thank you. All right, Drew. Or I should say Craig. Yeah, we're going with Craig. And my next? Okay. Scene?
2: Second favorite. Uh, now, let me back up just a little bit and go back to my Tolkien roots for just a moment. Uh, okay. So there's a there's a, a common complaint from people who have a hard time uh, making it through the Lord of the Rings that it's too descriptive. Oh, do you have to describe every hill on, uh, you know, and every landscape, every mountain peak in the distance or whatever? Oh, just stop already. I would actually argue that I kind of wish that Brandon would have done more of that through this story. And the reason why is the very, very last chapter. After the climax has ended, the, it, says it has seized the power and remade the world. And Spook and the rest of, uh, of the people come out of their caverns. They open up their doors, they come out of the caverns, whatever. And they see this green field and the flowers. And it's this wonderful moment of, of uh, beauty. Right. Oh, this is what the world is supposed to look like, and you get a little bit of that with the flower picture and all this stuff. And oh my gosh, the green grass and these, uh, you know, colorful flowers and all that. Where I think it took me until my second or third time through the story, and I'm not an inattentive reader, right? But it still took me two or three times through the story uh, to to really start to picture in. In in most of these three books, but especially the first couple, just how awful this world looks, how brown and gray and black and just dead and dying and ashen and all this stuff. He mentions ash from falling from the sky, but he doesn't really dwell on the scenery, on the things that are around our characters. Uh, He he mentions them, but he doesn't dwell on it. And I kind of wish he would because it would have made one of my favorite scenes, which is that final scene, even better sure. when they come out to the, nice. to the green yeah, world. Yeah. Um, I do love that moment regardless. But at this point, I think it's taken me uh, a few read-throughs to actually come to a full appreciation of the change that they go through. Um, because, I, like I said, I wish he would have given us a little more of that.
0: Right. So. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you said that because that reminds me of a point that I totally forgot to write down for my aesthetic points here, my style points here. But, and again, I don't know why I keep drawing this back to The Matrix. I keep doing this. <laughs> but those movies, The Matrix, for those who aren't film students may, may or may not have realized that all the scenes that take place in The Matrix are shot with a very specific filter when, when scenes are happening in The Matrix. There's a slight green tinge that you pick up on through the lens to show that this is an artificial world. And I've always, always fantasized about the Mistborn trilogy, whether it be a show or a big blockbuster theater experience, everything happening on Scadrial with a very, very slight red filter to symbolize, the the to show the, the red sun, the bleeding sky and stuff like that. And of course we get all this imagery from the, the, the magma, the lava, the ash. I think a red filter would be really, really cool, as long as it's subtle, it shouldn't be obnoxious. But especially because of this last scene that Craig likes so much, where we would, at that point, switch over to a natural filter, a sunlight filter, for that last scene only, something that the viewers hadn't seen at any point before this, to show that things are now officially different, that the world has changed, and everything is going to be alright, finally, you know. I would like to see a like a, just again. This is the filmmaker in me. I want to see that little that
1: subtle red lens, and then that change in that last scene. It would just be so cool. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, yeah. So my my second favorite scene is uh, as I alluded to earlier in the episode. It is Vin in the storeroom with Ruin when you know Reen steps out of the shadows. You know, and okay, and she yeah you know, she. Makes her leaping attack, and she sees his face as she gets closer and, and realizes, Oh my gosh, what is going on here? I, the, the, the whole atmosphere, wonderful writing, and mm, I, I, yeah, I, I want to see that one on the screen really, really badly, too. All, all of these I want to see on the screen, and, <laughs> and, and we'll get to that in my, my favorite one, too. But, but that's my second favorite song. Awesome. In this book.
0: Okay. All right, so I'll go forward with my favorite scene, and I'm really glad that neither of you have have said this because it would have felt redundant at that point. <laughs> there we have chapter fifty five where we have Ellen Venture losing hope, finally losing hope and just kneeling down in the ash this is the This is the greatest part of the book for me, and I, I the reason for that is I mean, I love this scene, not only for how well it's written, but also for how different of a scene it is when the reader has the appropriate context and goes back to it. Watching Preservation's shadow try and give Ellen that last bit of hope, that last nudge that he needs. Remembering my frustration, like, right alongside Ellen's, like, at at not understanding what message the mist spirit is trying to get across, but seeing exactly what this thing is trying to say with the context and hating myself for not figuring it out in this moment when Alan claims the mists are killing his people and the mist spirit steps forward. I was like, yikes, okay, hold on. And it even points to his belt. It's pointing to his belt. I want to tear out my hair or I guess lack thereof at this point when Ellen is, is holding up the allomantic vial. and He's like, metals? And preservation is just waving and waving and waving. I just want to hug Laris (laughs) at this point. This poor guy, or the poor god of humanity, I suppose I should say. Just for that alone, how different this scene is on a reread, especially when you have the context of the Cosmere as a whole, it comes in at the top of my list. Writing two completely different scenes in one is just such a classic Sanderson move, and I have nothing but mad respect for it.
2: Yeah, so there's so. Uh, something happening here stylistically that I think is worth mentioning. And sure. Continue, uh, another bathroom break. <laughs> somebody's, been, somebody's been dipping in a little too much into his final draft during this mm-hmm. episode. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something going on here, Drew, where, uh, again, let me back up a little bit. The omniscient narrator has fallen out of favor quite a bit in the last couple of decades. We don't really get it very often, and when we do, it's not a very well-regarded book. Uh, Sanderson does not use an omniscient narrator. He is very much with the times as far as using a very strict POV structure. Yep. And yet there is a trick that he uses in this book in particular, which is the epigraphs. Mm Mm-hmm. And the stuff that would normally be given to an omniscient narrator isn't is relegated to the epigraphs, where we do get an omniscient narrator yeah. in, essentially, right? In says um, uh, it as the ascended god, whatever. What you call him? Har- har- Harmony. Harmony. What? Harmony. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe uh, maybe Rob's not the only one. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> and so he yeah, no. gets so he gets to have his cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. Where the omniscient narrator is extremely useful in giving the audience a peek into something that the characters don't know or don't understand. Uh, but you can't do that when you have a strict POV uh, scene or a strict POV book, right? And so in this scene, Ellen gives up hope, and the mist spirit is there. Uh, and trying to point out certain things to him and he's he's failing and then you get the epigraph of the very next chapter which is 56 when Sazed writes in his notes that he passes along he says if ellen had waited just a few more minutes on that ashen field he would have seen a body short of stature black hair prominent nose fall from the mists and slump dead into the ash and it's a vital bit of information that you could not have given yeah. to Ellen's point of view. It's a really slick little trick that he does where I, I personally, I wish that the omniscient narrator would come back uh, because you get little bits like this. I, I kind of prefer the omniscient narrator, I yeah. think. Um, but it, this is a great way for him to do it without quite doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, it does. i I I'm... I'm getting worked up like it, mentally right now because <laughs> this is just reminding me of uh, some time ago when I got in a, a very heated argument with somebody online and this guy just would not admit that Brandon Sanderson wrote in limited third-person point of view. He was like, no, this oh, is I a remember that. Hair-writer. I remember that. He was like, this is an omniscient I was omniscient there with you hair-writer. for that. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're an idiot. And I, I was like providing like you know all these links to like what point of view is <laughs> quotes from Brandon Sanderson and and all that and he's like he's like just because he's the author doesn't doesn't mean he knows what he's talking about either and I'm like dude I like I went and looked at the guy's facebook profile like he, he was like a mechanic at a shop. He didn't even go to college. I was like, so, so you know oh, better. Oh,
2: Drew, that was the most elitist thing like, you have ever said. No, no, Listen no, 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 to no. me. You're talking to
1: somebody who didn't graduate yeah, high right, school right, and right. also works but, in a but shop. What, but... what <laughs> drove me nuts was that this guy, <laughs> this guy who didn't graduate college is saying, I know better than all the professionals and all the professors and all the people who do this for a living they're all wrong and I'm right. And I was just like, oh man, I can't even talk anymore with you because it it's was not so infuriating. Else. Like this, the, <laughs> the, oh man, the.
2: <laughs> and now, and now all of your listeners know what you
0: think about people who didn't go to college, no, Drew.
1: No, I'm, I'm, that's no, not no. Listen, all what I remember. Saying with
0: that. I know, I know. I re- I remember this exact conversation. I remember the day this happened. This was maybe a year ago, right, Drew? You were it, you were messaging it was, me it was over a little Facebook over a
1: year ago because we actually recorded. I think I think we recorded maybe an Acts of Cain episode, and I and I joked on the episode about how Matthew Stover used a a limited yep. third person yep. point of view for for a specific set of chapters. And
0: I remember picking up on that joke right yeah. there. Yep. Oh man. <laughs> This, this this goes way back. That's an excellent callback for anybody who's listened to our Acts of Cain uh, episodes, which would be, I think, between 11 and 19 with some odds, odds and ends in between. Yeah, yeah. There, there was definitely a moment somewhere in there where Drew made a joke about a, a limited versus omniscient third-person yeah. perspective, and I just started cracking up because I knew exactly who he was thinking oh, about man. when he said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a trip down memory lane that yeah. was. Where are we in, in terms of our... Uh, favorite scenes Craig is is
2: up. It, you're up it's uh your last one isn't it oh no did i just respond no, to yours? I, I said
0: my last one uh, I, have an, I have an honorable mention but i've said all <laughs> my very favorite um all
2: right so uh i have a, a slightly cheesy one hope you guys are ready oh. for that so it's chapter 81 Cheese me up not oh, do i have to pay extra for that rob <laughs> <laughs> on my only fans yeah <laughs> oh my gosh so so it's a little bit cheesy and you have to have a certain personality type for it to hit you the way that it hit me and the way that i would measure that is how did you feel about the third act of interstellar okay so if people aren't if people aren't familiar with interstellar i freaking love that movie it's uh one of one of my favorites of all time and uh, in the end of Interstellar, it's been a lot of like uh, scientific stuff and you know mumble jumble that you don't understand if you're not a physicist. And then in the end, it's like it's kind of a love conquers all message. It's very Harry Potter. Like love is the thing that tied us all together. Whatever. I'm anyway sure. So what? I I really liked that, and I, I think there's you know maybe more to it than people give it credit for, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, now if I pull into hero of ages that kind of mindset that I had when I watched that movie, there's the bit when, uh, Ellen, the ax took off Ellen's head, right? So again, we're in chapter 81. Yeah. The very end of the story here. So Ellen has died and Vin is ascended at this point. And uh, so now, now I'm quoting from the book, Vin floated above Ellen's body looking down. She reached out with incorporeal fingers Touching his head, remembering how it had felt to use her power to fuel his allomancy. A couple paragraphs later, um, she says, uh, Yeah, Elland was dead. That brought pain, true, but not the pain she had expected. I let him go long ago, she thought, stroking his face. And just the imagery of her even though she is she no longer has a body she is incorporeal as it says and yet she comes down and and strokes his face and remembers him and how much she loves him and how much she appreciated their time together it's again a little bit of a cheesy point and a kind of a love conquers all kind of thing but it's still it's so nice and it's so compared to everything else that has gone on with this uh, the epic language that you mentioned earlier, uh, Rob, you know, that we get from Ruin or whatever. It's such a small little thing. She stroked his face. Uh, she remembers Ellen, this man that she loved. I it, it, Of all the things that happen in this book, that's the one that sticks with me mm. maybe the most. Is how much these two characters love each other. Uh, and it's a, it's a powerful scene for me.
0: Oh, nice. I love that. I love that you brought that up. I love it. Because... Yes, I remember that moment, and it's one of my favorite moments in this book. It didn't make my, my list of top three or maybe even top five, but it's it's definitely very, very moving. Um I also really really actually I kind of prefer Ellen's point of view on the other side of this, um, right before it happens, as he burns Duralibin and ATM. And, or actually, I should say, maybe right before he does, he looks up and he sees Vin as this mystical figure in the sky with her hands on his shoulders and her hair thrown back as like this, this domineering uh, visage in the sky. And we also get this detail, this really cool detail, I don't know why I think it's really cool, of Marsh trying to block his view, mm. holding his hand over his steel eyes to block it as if it's a powerful light. I uh, just this moment that Ellen and Vin were connected with one another. I use connected, in, with a with as a captain yeah. in with a capital C here. You know, I just there's so much about that. it, it the second half of this, I just want to say, I don't understand this continuing uh, fan. I don't want to call it a complaint, but just a point of note that people consider Ellen and Vin's relationship a little bit contrived, a little bit boring, a little bit stale <clears throat> It's for this reason that I love. I love their relationship. The end of well of Ascension, the conversation that, that Vin has with says in this book about it saying he, t- he taught me, or at least Kelsier taught me enough to love Ellen enough to let him die. And then this end of the book—it's just—it's this theme that goes on. I love how much Ellen and Vin are willing to sacrifice for one another, despite one another. It, it's such—it's such a great romance, and I don't understand people who th- who think that it's boring. It's there's so much to be had from it. It's so well done. Yeah.
2: It's I I I think a lot of the complaint probably comes from something we were akin to what we were talking about earlier, where. It's not as romantic, and I, I use a, sure. a capital R with that. It's yep. not as sure. uh, yep. as romantic when you have a character like Vin who decides, I am going to commit to Ellen. I love Ellen. And she decides that. And then things flow from that. Um, she comes to that decision and then and then goes about the process of justifying that and ordering her life around it. It's not as romantic as some other versions of a love story. And so it probably jars some people a little bit uh, when they read it. Would, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: To those people, I would just say reread it. And then <laughs> when you've done that, guess what?
1: Pick it up, reread it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Drew, I think <laughs> you're the last one. So, yeah. My yeah, man, tell my us favorite us scene is been fighting the Inquisitors over Credit Shaw. It is... <laughs> oh, oh,
2: oh, oh, really?
1: It, it what yeah
2: R-
0: what why not i don't like that scene too much i loved it at first for like my first five or ten reads get I, out of here i, I don't <laughs> yeah. sorry I'll, I'll let drew
1: finish before it's, I it's one of it's detail. one of the best bits of writing brandon has ever done the, the the descriptions are so vivid i've i've talked about this on previous episodes you know in the you know, versus the inquisitor uh, Vin saving Sazed or Vin killing uh, Strath in, in Well of Ascension*. These are scenes that are are so vividly written, so vividly burned into my mind's eye. I can just you know close my eyes and see that coin you know sparkle in the in the sunrise as you know as Vin kills the Coloss. I can see Vin fighting the, the Inquisitors among the spires of credit shaw i can it, it's so vivid it's so wonderfully written it, it, it has to be my favorite scene in the book because of that
0: hmm your very favorite you yes. say
1: you know i really loved vin versus in- the inquisitors
0: in my first few reads as I, as i just mentioned but and i cannot believe i am about to do this for the fourth time this episode i'm going to bring it back to the matrix <laughs> again again <laughs> Vin versus the Inquisitors felt too easy to me. It, 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 upon a closer look, like the Inquisitors, like the agents in The Matrix, for anybody that's that's seen The Matrix, particularly the first movie, the Inquisitors have been, along this entire series, been uh, proffered as these unkillable machines, these things you need to run from. And for that reason, it's so cool when we see Vin kill, or sorry, I should say, Kelsier kill an Inquisitor in the final Empire, and then we see Vin and Ellen kill an Inquisitor at the beginning of the Hero of Ages, but in this last scene, when she is killing all of the Inquisitors, and she's counting it off to herself as they die, you know, one, two, three, four, and then she'd like, some of them die without her meaning to die, or meaning to kill them, and to me, it felt like the Inquisitors suddenly went from being these terribly intimidating and dangerous machines of death to suddenly bad extras in a in a martial arts flick where they're just dying by accident like if you look back at some like for example the matrix i watched the matrix reloaded again today and there's the burly brawl scene so emblematic of 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 early martial arts in the early 2000s but if you really really pay attention if, if you want to go ahead and slow it down while neo is fighting some of these Uh, agents, you know, others are in the back and they're just like sitting there looking threatening. They're throwing fake punches. They're not hitting him, you know, and it felt to me a lot like what these Inquisitors were doing. They didn't seem dangerous enough. The fact that Vin managed to kill them so easily in some cases made me go, I mean, I can see that she's ascending to preservation, but I felt like it was just so unexpected to see 12 or 13, well, however many, I think it was 12 and then Marsh was the 13th. Inquisitors just get defeated in a matter of minutes as she was counting it down. It just felt too easy. I don't know.
2: I, I think that's a perfectly legitimate way to look at the scene. I personally disagree. Yeah. I'm with Drew. I think it's sure. absolutely fantastic. And I think I, there are two ways to look at it. And I guess I see it the other way where you see it as uh, uh Sanderson nerfing the um the inquisitors and I see right. it as him buffing Vin yeah. where she sure. has she has spent at the end of the first book when Kelsey kills that inquisitor she notes like oh this is what Allomancy is the art of pushing and pulling metals with iron and steel and that's our understanding of it at the end of the first book but by the end of the third book we understand that no, all these other medals have a lot to do with uh, with the way a Misborn fights, and Kelsier never quite understood that. He discounted the other medals and here she is using every medal that she possibly could to outsmart uh, outwit the uh, the Inquisitors. I don't know, I, I see it as a, a Vin buff, yeah, not uh, not a nerf I'm on the other you part.
0: I'm glad that you say that, because it just reminded me of another reason why it kind of irritates me, and I <laughs> should have given this for context, and that is the fact that the Inquisitors now are also far more powerful than, than they used to be. And that Sanderson makes a point to, to, to draw that Ruin has granted them the extra spikes that the Lord Ruler was denying them, and that they are now unlocked, and that each of these, if, if I'm going to quote... Each of these creatures was essentially another Lord Ruler. When you when you propose such a danger as that, and then you just completely flick it aside minutes later, it kind of jarred me a little bit with a juxtaposition, that's all. Yeah, err on the side of awesome. It was a little too quick. But
2: it, like I said, you you definitely have a point, and I think that's a legitimate way to look at it, but uh, it's
0: awesome. Yep. It, oh yeah. Yeah, go right back to that. Like like the burly brawl, that, that that scene in the Matrix. It's just it's so cool. There's some parts of it that I don't like, but I can absolutely see why it was still filmed that way just because you have to err on the side of awesome. All right, for for, for the rest of us spectacle here. For the uh for the non-initiated, what the hell is the burly brawl? That's the scene with with, with if you've seen the Matrix Reloaded? Sure. That's the scene with Neo versus, like, the 50 to 100 Agent Smiths. Okay, they're really really poor
2: CGI when he swings the poor. Yeah, yeah, the
0: first half is really cool kung fu martial arts practical effects, and the second half is a whole bunch of CGI that's kind of vomit inducing
2: oh there, you know? there's a uh, bowling pin sound effect in the yes middle there of is
0: that there absolutely is those mad lads use a bowling pin sound effect when neo t- i don't how are we talking about the matrix Always like i should say how are we talking about it? i've brought it up like four times that
2: was the but, first rated r movie i ever saw in theaters
0: and believe it or not a little bit of trivia for you the highest earning rated r movie of all time until deadpool nice nice okay all right good to know Sorry, this is my, again, we're going back to my film.
2: You know what? If you're going to invite somebody from the Legendarium onto your show, you're going to get some Legendarium tangents. So (laughs) that explains why we're talking about the Matrix right now.
0: Sweet, sweet. All right. I also want to bring forth my my, my honorable mention, this last line where Sazed has has ascended to harmony, and he holds the powers of creation and destruction in Twain, and he restored flowers to the plants that had once borne them. I love that line. That line is the end of the series for me. Like I like I, I love how Sanderson managed to end it on a note like he did, with Spook saying everything's going to be all right finally, and I think that was the perfect ending. But the line I had been waiting three books for was this one, and he restored flowers to the plants that had once borne them. I love that line. I just love it. Yeah. Nice. Here, here. So, and that's it. That's that's everything I have to say about the Hero of Ages. I also find myself just like ah. Uh, sort of regretful just because like i said this is my favorite ending of all time and i'm fully prescient of the fact that i might not be able to get to discuss it this much in depth ever again (laughs) and i'm kind of sad
1: for that oh you know well i love this book on that note though i think we we have reached the point where we're you know we're gonna head into the final draft
0: yes let's let's head into the final draft i'll start us off um, so I was at the liquor store and I was trying to find a Drew. Uh, a Drew. Oh my God. A, <laughs> a, a brew that I had brought on a draft I had brought on for um, I think it was it was Path of Daggers. The end of Path of Daggers for a Wheel of Time episode. I had a nice thematic tie in there. And I thought I realized about a, a week ago, wow, that would, that would actually be even better thematically linked with the ending of this one. It was a brew called Beat the Heat. Uh, <laughs> nice. Nice. I tried to find it, and I could not find it. No, it was not the end of Path of Daggers. It was the beginning. For yeah. Okay, Drew knows what I'm talking about. Craig, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, too. Um, But uh, I couldn't find that one in the liquor store this week around, so I ended up going for one that was, you know, a little more vague, but still thematically appropriate, especially considering how I feel about the ending of this book. I have the can right here. I brought an IPA, an Indian Pale Ale. It's actually 6.5%... Alcohol by volume. It's a a strong IPA. It's uh, from Nickelbrook Brewing Company in Burlington, Ontario. As an IPA, I definitely expected and found immediately all of these very tropical fruit flavors, especially the grapefruit. The citrus really, really bled through. Um, It had a really, really nice fluffy white head. I cracked it open at the beginning of the show, and uh, it it really, really was awesome. I am definitely going to be buying this one again. This is called wicked awesome nice. <laughs> very good <laughs> so i tried to bring on beat the heat for the ending of hero of ages i couldn't find it but wicked awesome is a worthy substitute just in terms of how much i love this book yeah
2: all right, all right very good so um Craig. the uh I, i've already mentioned one of my favorite scenes being after ellen's death um the the axe took off ellen's head and that's how we start the, oh, the no. end of that scene right Now, I did not have to look far or hard uh, for this one. It just worked beautifully. It's uh, maybe one of my favorites of all time. This is from Epic Brewing. It's a Belgian-style ale called Brainless Raspberries. So... (laughs) Oh! (laughs) So... Oh! there's There's a recurring image that happens throughout this book where Ellen's white uniform gets stained red. And so... There, there's a whole Brainless series. My favorite one is uh, the Raspberries version of it. Uh, so this one, yeah, 22 ounces at 9.2%. You can bet I'm feeling it at this point.
0: That so. is... <laughs> damn. And I also want to say, Brainless also kind of draws back to chondra at the end with the resolution <laughs> yeah, as they yeah. remove their spikes yep, and yep, they, yep. they remove their agency and they they draw themselves back to Mist Wraiths. And lose their sentience i do like that
2: anyway so yes highly recommended it's uh, if it's not my absolute favorite of all time it's uh, it's one of them so if you can get your hands on it give it a shot
1: nice yeah, i i can vouch for that I've, right, I've had a, a couple of their brainless beers and brainless on raspberries is indeed particularly good um <laughs> so i uh, i have to admit i was not drinking a beer today i was just drinking some water in my got brandon uh a water bottle. <laughs> oh, um, I haven't seen
0: that before. Yeah. That's
1: awesome. Uh, Where'd you get that? I don't even remember. I I, I think it was a, a maybe a Christmas present from my brother-in-law. But yeah, however, you know, I I was feeling a little under but the weather. But had you brought something, yeah. Drew, had you brought something. I was something. feeling a little under the weather today, so I, I, you know, my stomach was kind of telling me, no, don't, don't drink this beer. But I did buy a beer for it and. Says the man who's wearing a shirt that has IPA Yeah, yeah I'm wearing oh, an, an Odell there. IPA shirt. Um. The beer I brought was an IPA, and for obvious reasons, very fitting is Ruination from Stone Brewing Company nice. in California. <laughs> yes,
0: very you good. You brought that on for our Ruined of Kings episode, didn't you? Oh, because you called it the Ruination of the Written Word. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think you're right. Oh man. Yeah, you absolutely did. That was also the episode that I brought on the No Name. Yeah, beer. yeah.
1: That's right if wet bread were fermented it would be, oh. be that that brew that i brought yeah oh man but yeah so i believe that brings us to the end of our episode this has been episode oh rob help me is a 78 now uh oh this is 78
0: okay. are we making an episode for um um house of sticks or is that just like a it's bonus, a bonus right? episode
1: and this one i believe will be yeah so this will be 78 this will be out before our house of sticks episode anyway so yeah, um okay. uh, but yeah so uh Wait, are we sure? Are we longest sure? Longest episode we've had, Well, Ascension boys. Part Two, was seventy-five, and then Nine Princes in Amber. No, yes, yes
2: now is yeah. the time to figure this out, guys. Yeah, now exactly. is the time.
1: Yes, yep. yep this is yep, a this guys. is yep. becoming an inking out loud tradition where we can't keep track of how many episodes we've done,
0: <laughs> and we keep making longer and longer. Yeah, episodes. I'm pretty sure boys,
1: we have officially
0: crossed the longest episode. Yeah, I was going to say this
1: is this has beaten the the previous record by a solid ten minutes. Um. Crossroads of Twilight, I believe that was. Uh, yeah, so next up, we are going to be heading into the Way of Kings. We are heading on into the Stormlight Archive, continuing our Cosmer coverage. We will be yeah, covering part one of the Way of Kings. Uh, just the going by the actual book divisions. There are five parts in the Way of Kings, our, our next episode. But will you guys,
0: will there
2: will there be enough to talk about with just one part of the way of kings oh. believe me
0: craig when i could talk five hours on that one part uh question real quick though drew are we including the interludes that follow or no are the interludes
1: that follow part, uh, part, part two, two. The, the interludes will be in part two yeah. okay um, okay yeah so so we're just reading the the prelude the prologue and part one so definitely check back in for that we will have a a guest on for that one uh she will be making her inking out loud debut uh our artist actually danielle so we're very excited to have her on check us out on patreon if you want to support the podcast patreon.com slash inking out loud you can get access to bonus episodes monthly newsletter monthly short fiction written by rob or myself lots of lots of goodies so check that out as always i'm your host drew mccaffrey with me is my co-host, Rob Santos, and our special guest, Craig Hanks. Thanks for coming on again, Craig.
0: Thank you, Craig. you, Check out
1: Craig on the Legendarium podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure most of the people who are listening to us have already listened to the Legendarium, but if, if you oh, haven't, go check them out because they're awesome. Uh, as always, though, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time.
0: Bye, everyone.